Hello everyone and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Thank you very much for joining us on today's read and review. We're going to be looking at a new world here on the show. We're going to be investigating a cyberpunk detective story known as Noir by the science fiction writer K.W. Jeter. That's right. My name is Scott Powell and as always I'm joined by my reader in arms, Joshua Taylor. Hello. Hey buddy. I'm uh, looking forward to this conversation because I have a feeling, I have a feeling that our uh, our opinions on not just the genre, but the, the particular tale we're going to be sharing with folks today um, may be polarizing. Yeah, it could be a little contentious. That's true. We'll see. Um, how is the heat? Uh, I know you people in the UK right now are enjoying the usual heat that we would get on the mainland in North America here. How are you finding that? I... It's okay, yeah. It's a second heat wave of the summer. Speaking of and, the scopia, uh, I think it's it's. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, right? Get used to the new normal. It's um, it's taken people, I think, less by surprise maybe than the first one. Right. Um, yeah, uh, I should say as we record this today, Saturday, the uh, the thirteenth of August, um, a wonderful writer, Salman Rushdie, is uh, in hospital mm. undergoing emergency surgery for the. Uh, yeah, that's terrible. The attack that he suffered yesterday in, in New York State, giving a lecture, that uh, some shocking news. Um, no doubt part of his address would have been on the importance of free speech and, uh, you know, kind of um, the liberties of literature. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least start off at the top and uh, wishing him, his family and listeners all the very best here as uh, as we get started. Yeah, it's pretty shocking stuff. Hey, buddy. Yeah, um, it's just, it's crazy to think about it, you know, like that fatwa has been on him for so long and it's only, and, and it seemed to kind of just like disappeared into the woodwork. Right. But then all of a sudden you get some fanatical young man who wanted to espouse mm-hmm. the beliefs of his, of those previous to him and f- fulfill that terrible goal. And this guy almost, almost did it. I know Rushy's alive. So, and he's on mm-hmm. uh, a ventilator right now. Um, he's possibly going to lose that's his eye right, yeah. as well. Yeah, that's what that's what I'd seen mostly recently. Yeah, that's the news. There are so many um, extremists, yeah, and the views and the practices of the extremists are such that. Uh, uh, anyway, sad stuff. So uh, fingers crossed for Salman Rushdie because he's uh, not just one of my favorite writers, but he's I think one of the most important post-colonial voices that we have had in the 20th and 21st century. And uh, yeah, he's a, a big figure. So. Fingers crossed there. Um, but yes, today's adventure is is a little different, isn't it, bud? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, just to reconnect this back to Salman Rushdie, I mean, you just said a moment ago about how he advocated free speech and, and liberty and writing. And if you think about cyberpunk, mm-hmm. you don't get any more free speech and philosophizing than in cyberpunk. I've read Snow Crash by Neil mm-hmm. Stevenson. Yeah. Priors, um, that was my only prior cyberpunk experience in terms of literature. So I was able to bring that focus that I brought to mm-hmm. Snow Crash over to Noir. However, that hap- I read Snow Crash years ago. So I really had to, you know, play with the focus a little bit, so to speak, on the binoculars <laughs> to zoom in mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. on the right verbiage yeah. and style in order That's for right. me to process yeah. this book. I will confess that I had a smaller window of reading this book than you did than you did. So it's still fresh in my mind in terms of the story and plot, but I don't think that I gave it a fair chance. I'm saying this as a disclaimer. I don't think I gave it a fair mm-hmm. chance in terms of really reading it uh, as I should have. 
but it is what it is. I it took me a week to finish the book when I felt this book should have been like a three week kind of read for me. Like just kind of mm-hmm. one of those things where I would pause and look up, you know, the meanings of some words or look up the quotes that Jeter was presenting to us in the novel. I, I kind of wish I dug deeper into it than I suppose just kind of skim the surface of it. And therefore I absorbed it superficially as well. So while I think I have the acumen of providing a, I guess a drive-by analysis of the story. <laughs> Again, I don't feel that I'm giving it, it a fair shot, I suppose, in terms of oh, analyzing well, maybe, it or maybe, critiquing it. Okay. I'm going to step in here on your behalf because you are a very well-read science fiction reader. You have read a lot of science fiction. You're very uh, you're very up up on the the generic features, mm-hmm. the tropes. Uh, you know, I think that cyberpunk is, as we'll get into today, cyberpunk is certainly a, a different, uh, uh, a separate organism to mainstream science fiction. Yeah. But you, you're a very accomplished reader, and I think even a drive-by assessment from you would represent a, a great percentage of what readers probably did encounter when they read it. I mean, you know, it, it while, while the New York Times and the Times Education Supplement and the Seattle Chronicle or whoever, while they'll, they'll have different reviewers for different books, there's also the, you know, the every man, the every woman, the every person who picks a book up, looking at it, thinking it might be interesting in the airport, in the bookstore, as a gift, and reads this book. And so while your knowledge and understanding of cyberpunk may be smaller compared to myself or some of our listeners. I think your your reading of it will be quite welcome because it might just represent the you know the the uninitiated or the less initiated readership, and that's yes, definitely out there. Sure. That's good. That's a good kind of viewpoint to have, like in terms of looking at this book. I mean, you've read a few cyberpunk novels, so you're very familiar with the genre. Mm-hmm. I think you know, on a superficial level. You know, like you have to realize when you think of cyberpunk, uh, it's not what it is known in terms of pop culture. We think of stuff like hackers mm. or the Matrix or that cyberpunk yeah, video yeah. game that had all the bugs in it that everyone was talking about. I mean, that mm-hmm. is that or yeah. Blade Runner, even for example. Uh, yep. So there's these ideas of cyberpunk that we have that kind of creates the view of it being like, oh, it's this really kind of futuristic noir sort of mystery story with like punks with different colored hair and stuff and they're jacked in and stuff (laughs) and it's all about use all the tropes of cyberpunk are in this novel as you see like as i saw in snow crash and what i know about the cyberpunk genre this is the cyberpunk genre Mm -hmm. but in a way it's almost like a cyber hipster i don't want to use the word hipster derogatorily because I went. I used to work in. I know exactly I used to work in a retail yeah. music store, so I know what a hipster is. Like I'm very familiar <laughs> with right, what a yeah. hipster is. But I know. <laughs> but a lot of them, despite you know having a reputation of being kind of pretentious, I know a lot of those people were very sincere in their in the, in the way they talked about the world and the society. And I would not call them pretentious at all. Some yes, but not mm-hmm. all of them. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to say is is that we have to take in consideration that cyberpunk is not just an aesthetic in terms of a genre of writing, but it's also a style of writing. It's, there's a language to cyberpunk mm-hmm. that I think take many yes. that take people by surprise when they delve into it. Very much. And, and Very you much don't so. get what yeah. you expect. A lot of science mm-hmm. fiction is like mm-hmm. that. A lot of science fiction does not hold your hand, yeah. uh, for example. That's right. Like if you ever read, for example, Frank Herbert's Dune, that is a story that does mm-hmm. not hold your hand. It uses terminology mm-hmm. and in-world language and uh colloquialisms and just terms that you're supposed to figure out what they mean as they go along you know 
now Herbert provided a glossary at the end, of course, but um, Cyber, yes. Cyber, Cyberpunk doesn't provide you a glossary. I guess you could say you have no. to. Yeah. Ja- it's you, unforgiving. You have it's to, unforgiving you have to, to the uninitiated. Yeah. You have to plug in. You have mm-hmm. to learn how to use the software. And that's how you get cyberpunk. You have to learn the programming language, the literary language mm-hmm. of cyberpunk in order mm-hmm. to really appreciate mm-hmm. it. And you can't do that in a week. You you you, you really can't. No. You're, you're, you're going to skim the surface and know that there's a lot of depth to it. Yeah, well, I, th- I think what we're what we're getting towards here is the fact that cyberpunk is a subgenre of science fiction that needs a little introduction, and we're going to do that. Um, yeah, like you, like you suggest, Josh. I've had more experience reading cyberpunk than you have. Uh, I was fortunate enough while at university doing English to take a couple of modules in cyberpunk and science fiction, which is where I got my introduction to it, and from there I went on and read. So yeah, I mean, I've had a little bit better an academic understanding of it, but I think because it's new to you and maybe new to some of our our listeners who are used to us doing the kind of traditional mystery, the cop chaser, thriller type things, the detective story. Um, This does fit into the mystery and detective story. It does. But it does so through that language that you were talking about, through through a genre that we haven't yet Mm -hmm. coasted through on Lighting the Pipes. So I'm going to give a little introduction to cyberpunk, just I think what you need to know, and then um, hopefully that'll set everybody up. yeah, so that, that, that's what we're going to do today. We're trying something new, lighting the pipes, man. We're all about wanting to do new stuff, and we're excited to be bringing this uh, this review to you. We like to keep things mystery and detective oriented here, but yeah. I'm really excited to get to get on a different roller coaster here for this episode. So, uh, with that said, why don't we move over and learn a little bit about our writer in our fast facts feature? Yeah, where does KW Jeter hail from? All right, well. Kevin Wayne Jeter was born March 26, 1950. He grew up in Orange County, California, attended Buena Park High School, and then CSU in Fullerton, where he met two other soon-to-be-successful writers, Tim Powers and James Blaylock. Fantasy writer. Through them, he also... That's right. And through them, Josh, he also met and became friends with Philip K. Dick. Mm, that makes sense. known for his... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, Dick was older than all three of those men, yes. but uh, he became, uh, he didn't just become a friend to Jeter, he also became sort of a celebrant, as we'll see. Jeter is chiefly known for his work in science fiction and fantasy. He is a prolific and a capable writer, trusted name in the genre, really. Um, how trusted? Well, he's written expanded universe and continuation stories for no less than three of the major universes, Star Trek, Star Wars, and Blade Runner. Yeah, he wrote a trilogy on uh, Boba Fett for, uh, it's called, I forget, mm-hmm. I think it's called the Bounty Hunter Trilogy. I, I'm not quite sure the fact name of it. Yeah, this, of yeah, course, okay. is what was once known as the expanded universe of Star Wars. But since mm-hmm. the takeover of Disney, yeah. it's discounted and it's called simply The Legacy. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for example, like Timothy Zahn's famous uh, Thrawn Trilogy. Thrawn Trilogy. That's yeah. considered the expanded universe or now The Legacy, as it's called by Lucasfilm. However... Lucasfilm is known to pick pick out little things from the legacy era and put it into their into their established canon, as we're seeing from the Disney mm-hmm. productions. Mm-hmm. But I recall reading that Jeter book, and I also know that he mm-hmm. did a uh, he wrote yeah he wrote this a sequel to Blade Runner, the first official sequel mm, he did that was done because there was a big resurgence of that in the in the early two thousands of how Blade Runner got popular. That's how I discovered it was like in the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, hi. Right, so he did, and uh, his relationship with Philip K. Dick probably helped a little bit in that massaging that sequel out. Yes. 
Uh, his first his first completed novel, though, Dr. Adder, was written in 1972, but it took more than 10 years to get published. As such, it is not his first published work. That credit goes to Seeklight from 1976. Mm. It's regarded by some as the first cyberpunk novel, at least by today's understanding and acceptance of the genre's features. But many people uh, contest that, and I think I probably would as well. The delay in publication was due to the novel's violence and graphic sex, by the way, that being Dr. Adder. It uh, was eventually published by Blue Jay Books in 1984. Hmm. Philip K. Dick championed the text and maintains that had it been published sooner, quote, its impact on the field would have been enormous. That's uh, high praise indeed. In terms of cyberpunk, yeah. Mm -hmm. In 1987, buddy, uh, Jeter coined the term steampunk. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And some correspondence with the science fiction and fantasy magazine Locus that you may have, uh, or you or our listeners may have heard of. He had been writing in the genre for quite a while already by this point. His novels in the speculative subgenre, which is affiliated with but very separate to cyberpunk, um, are among the first and I think most people would agree the finest examples. I have not read any of these though, but I'll, I'll list them for the sake of posterity. Morlock Knight, 1979, which is a soft sequel to H.G. Wells' Time Machine. Infernal Devices from 1987 is set in Victorian London as well and concerns a man named George Dower who discovers his father's penchant for repairs also stretch to include the creation of clockwork humans. Both Dr. Adder and George Dower characters feature in their own trilogies by Jeter as well. Steampunk is definitely late, an, an aesthetic that's yeah. been adopted. So mm-hmm, if Jeter mm-hmm. was, the, was the progenitor of that, then he's definitely been emulated many, many times. Because right now, if you, th- if you look in film, totally, yeah. in, in animation, in Japanese animation, like in anime, um, steampunk... Mm-hmm is king like there there is so much yeah, influence big. In, in terms of it mm-hmm. my sister and i uh we recently watched um this adaptation of the famous konami castlevania games and there's a lot mm-hmm. of steampunk mm-hmm. elements in that so it's cool. permeated yeah. much like noir in into various genres nice one nice one well in the late 1980s buddy and the early 1990s he turned heavily to writing horror uh, Mantis, Dark Seeker, The Land of the Dead, Nightman, and Wolf Flow are some titles there from his horror works. He also wrote the four-volume Mr. E comic and started self-publishing his Kim O series of detective stories. He resided up and down the west coast of America, but now lives in Ecuador with his wife, Jerry. Noir, our book, which we're getting on to shortly, represents his non-commercial work. And by that, I just mean it's a, an independent adventure not linked to a series Yes, I guess you could say he's kind of born of his own creative territory. Um, Jeter has written more than a dozen standalone adventures, uh, but none of them are quite like noir. And uh, as we said at the outset, noir is a science fiction story, but it is very firmly rooted in the detective genre and Mm -hmm. also in the noir genre, which Josh has been taking you through in Lighting the Pipes Noir recently. So I, I guess, buddy, it would be a good, good idea now to just transition into a little bit of cyberpunk context. Now, if you are au fait listening to this with the cyberpunk world, you know the genre. You don't really feel like you need to listen to it. Just skip ahead a little bit into where our summary of noir begins. But this will just be information and discussion on cyberpunk, which I think will be really helpful for those of you who are new to it and maybe wondering if, if you'd like to try it out. Yeah? I think I need a refresh.
Okay. Good. Well, cyberpunk, buddy, it's a subgenre of science fiction, as you know, whose stories are situated typically in a dystopian setting with a general combination of low life and high tech, suggesting that the world is governed by technocratic principles or figures who exploit human life or force it into poor, challenged existences. So makes sense so far? You're happy with it, that? It makes too much sense. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I was going to say, yeah. And cyberpunk does get that credit of being the type of science fiction that looks just around the corner, not too far, just around the corner just around of the where corner, we currently sit. Which, to me, it stretches your suspension of disbelief just enough so that you hang on by a thread and you kind of sort of yeah. quiver on the end of that thread at the terrifying possibility that it presents. That's right, yeah. And so the social world of cyberpunk, by extension, then, is very much one of conflict and inequality and struggle. And in many cyberpunk stories, free market capitalism is at work in terrifyingly ugly forms. Exaggerated, perhaps, but it's still very recognizable, Rick, as yes. I think we see here in noir. Uh, another feature of cyberpunk, societal collapse and strife, which we see present, it's, it's juxtaposed in the genre uh, by the technological advancement and integration. Okay, so things like AI, uh, VR, and cybernetics are, are staple features of the genre. Now, the new wave science fiction writing of the late 60s and 70s started presenting seeds of this genre through themes and settings like the ones I just outlined, but also through characters whose kind of marginalized or alienated situations thrust them into conflict or kind of began narratives of redemption, you know, like they were kind of moved immediately into places where they had to get out of. Comic books also, buddy, um, were really influential in helping cyberpunk gain traction as well, particularly titles like Judge Dredd. Yeah, but, uh, 2000 AD and Judge Dredd and, and, and those particular, mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. it's the British comic book artists that really that come out in the late 70s. And then in the 80s, those are the big cyberpunk influentials, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't until William Gibson's publication of Neuromancer that hit the scene in 1984 that the emerging subgenre had what I guess we could call today as a seminal text, which its acolytes and its devotees can really kind of like call their own, if, if that's yes. uh, an expression that we can use. Now, the only novel... Neuromancer remains the only novel to have won the Nebula Award for Best Science Fiction Story in America, the Philip K. Dick Award for Best Paperback Science Fiction, and the Hugo Award, which is the best science fiction work in the last year. Neuromancer is that book. And um, I reread it recently, so it's quite fresh in my mind. Um, Henry Case, he's a hustler in the dystopian world of Chiba City. Uh, his career is kind of like as a console cowboy. I mean, at least that's how it's described in the book, which is essentially a computer hacker. Uh, but it came to an end when he stole from his employer. Now, he was punished by having his central nervous system damaged, resulting in like his inability to access the virtual reality data space known as the Matrix. <laughs> now, this dude, Case, is approached um, by this ex-military figure named Armitage, who wants him to do a job for him. And so what he does is he repairs Case's nervous system, but he holds it at ransom until the job is complete. Mm -hmm. So the plot takes off from here with countless twists, turns, kind of developments, both in real and virtual worlds. The pace of the novel is frenetic, getting back to something you had said earlier. Uh, and I remember really vividly 
It's the first time I read Neuromancer having to stop and kind of scratch my head and take notes. And like 20 years ago, I read this for the first time. And I've since, like I said, reread the book and it sits more comfortably with me. But man, that first reading was just, it was just intense. That's, I remember it being tough. On an interesting note, um, Gibson is responsible for coining the term cyberspace. And even critics of his style point towards Neuromancer as one of the late 20th century's most pioneering and influential books. In 1999, The Guardian newspaper declared William Gibson the most important novelist of the past two decades. And if you think of the speed of advancement within computers and internet technology, buddy, on those si- on, uh, of those decades, mm. then the, the ones we grew up in, that's no small praise. Yeah, exactly. No small praise at all. It's like the careers mm-hmm. of Bill Gates... Of uh, and uh, Wozniak and Jobs, yeah, Steve Jobs, Wozniak, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, th- those guys, th- their careers. Even look at people like now, the big corporate figures like uh, Bezos and 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 um, Musk. You can see those permutations in real life that are reflected in cyberpunk. You know, in that, in that sense, and totally. the fact that like those individuals I mentioned were part of the the information revolution that occurred in the eighties and mm-hmm. the nineties. Gibson was tapping the source just at the right time oh totally almost prophetic yeah very much and i think i mean science fiction's always been on that curve hasn't it like in most cases the most successful and enduring texts yeah anyway moving away from gibson and the origins of the genre we've said probably enough about that and returning instead buddy to the common features or hallmarks of the genre these are this is sort of like the the reader's toolkit okay i guess you can think of it that way if you want yes there are dystopian settings and heightened technological scenes and integrations but it's the moral and philosophical energies of cyberpunk where a lot of its strength lies and where its cautionary significance as kind of like um literary soothsayer for our time really comes into its own Mm -hmm. for instance cyberpunk stories communicate these sorts of things okay how increased technology leads to social isolation dependency and displacement within the individual so, like, addiction, nihilism run rampant in science, in cyberpunk, and if the protagonists are not themselves poor or disenfranchised, then you can bet that they're scrapers, survivors, or they've got some sort of passing interaction with those lowly, alienated classes, because poverty and displacement is everywhere. Another thing that cyberpunk stories communicate is how corporations have replaced government. Mm. So, if not... If, if not softly, then like a shadow or a puppet master, then literally they are the government. Yeah. One step beyond heavy lobbying, you know, in government is just kind of being bought out by companies. So companies are the leaders of society. Profit yeah. is policy and employees are expendable. And then some. And then some. In cyberpunk worlds, there's a great divide, a greater divide, really, between capitalist owners and the working consuming class. So the genre is a really rich buffet table for Marxist criticism. (laughs) Um, And as we'll see, Jeter's novel reflects this corporate imperialism really clearly. Now, another thing that the cyberpunk worlds are known for is urban sprawl. So population growth in many cyberpunk texts has resulted in a lack of geographic variety. Rural life is all but being eradicated, or at least it's reserved for the privileged elite. Cities are enormous, characterless, homogenous planning, vertical existence, you know, that type of thing. It's like the megacities. One of the main features of the Judge Dredd comic and uh, the film adaptation, particularly the really, the one from a couple of years ago with uh, Carl Urban, which is really good. 
uh, is the idea of the mega city. The idea of like you have like uh-huh. all parts of North America, these all the like all the cities on the mm-hmm. eastern seaboard of North America combined into one walled area. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then people living like in totally. these giant tenements, these mega blocks where they're like these tenements mm-hmm. take that, that are the size of five city blocks, and there's people living yeah. like in one of these blocks, and they have their own individual tribal government, and then you have sort of like a mm-hmm. law enforcement society controlled by the corporations, uh, handing out like judgment in term and policing society in the most draconian way just to keep the masses from uprising and Mm -hmm. like the Mm -hmm. police and the security forces these corporations use in cyberpunk they're so draconian in their measures because they'll know that they'll be overtaken and overthrown by the rabble that they've created because of their greed and because of their greed and lust for power that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're taking the notes right off my page, buddy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, which is, which is, no, no, not at all. It, it's I'm good. the hamburger I mean, of, uh, of, of note stealing. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I think it's kind of rich, it's rich territory for hero quests, even if they're kind of corruptible hero quests. Now, another thing that cyberpunk does really well and really uniquely is it destabilizes meta narratives. Now, I know that sounds very academic and sort of uh, froofy, but what I mean is that, you know, things that we accept or take for granted today as being universal, true, kind of shared experiences, these big things like religious identity, right? Like cultural norms. These things are destabilized cleverly, deliberately, uh, sarcastically, ironically. They're they're just taken for rides with cyberpunk so that it's like the writers holding them up to you and saying, you think your life is safe. Well, you don't really know how fragile these things are that you live by, mm-hmm. right? These These big these big ideas and because they're fragile they can be corrupted right that that's the idea so if you're like a televangelist somewhere or you know uh and i'm am you're probably not going to enjoy cyberpunk at, at least if at least if, well, if you're stuck in a dogmatic point of view you know what i mean yes yeah even like you're a, not going to yeah that's right yeah even even a catholic priest or an or a um or a Protestant reverend, like you, like like an Anglican reverend. Mm-hmm. You're, yeah. If yeah. you if you have a That's dogmatic right. view of religion, or if you're someone who has a very uh, open or a very optimistic view of demo- of democratic government, for example, uh, that you know that the, the, the corruption can be eradicated. We just have to work together. Cyberpunk would kind mm-hmm. of give you the side eye. You know what I mean? Yeah, it would challenge it. Yeah, yeah. challenges the dogmatic for sure. Exactly. Definitely. Definitely. I guess a good example of that from Noir, which we'll probably speak about when we do our pipe shortly, is the Bishop of North America, the visit that McNihill takes. And without saying too much, when our protagonist visits that guy, we witness how a kind of value of uh, communion, transubstantiation, really uh, tangible in his faith, is very far removed from the practice of mm-hmm. kind of clicking your mouse and just waiting in an online queue for your redemption to, and your forgiveness. And not only that, it just also def- reflects the how religion has fallen in terms of the moral guidance of yeah, society. That's right. And that's seen through, if you think of today of the Roman Catholic church, I mean, they've been so powerful and wealthy for mm-hmm. centuries. And here the, the Bishop of North America is in like a cube, it's like in a cubicle essentially, uh, you know, handing out his mea culpas and, and doesn't even know really how to, to do a confession even, you know, uh, he has to go mm-hmm. and check the guidebook, you know, he's just there because people are, are yeah. so some yeah. people out there, who will pay or will, you know, will 
proffer into the religion because they're looking for some sort of hope, but it's not a widespread control like they used to have. Corporations obviously have taken control of government and the church as well. They've replaced it effectively in this world, uh, in noir in mm-hmm. particular. Yeah, And so th- we're not going to big Gothic cathedrals and seeing the power and wealth of the Roman Catholic Church as present as we do today. It's been basically eclipsed by the religion of commercialism, you know, the skylight windows of the shopping mall have taken over the cathedrals of the faithful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reduction of these meaning, meaningful things, these meaningful experiences like belief systems, you know, other meta narratives, I guess, to, to borrow that word from a moment ago. It also highlights a really, really key idea that I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it has to do with the philosophy of a guy named Jean Baudrillard. He died in 2007. And this, uh, many of you, many listeners will be aware, I'm referring to the simulacrum, which was a concept very, very important in science fiction and especially in cyberpunk. And it is worth a quick mention. The simulacrum essentially refers, Josh, to the literal or the figurative reduction of experience to like a a facsimile form uh, or behavior. Now, the philosophers out there can take me to town and task on the things I'm leaving out. I'm not a philosopher, but I did study Baudrillard for a year at university, and I'm happy to try to dilute the concept for listeners, for yourself, and particularly in the context of the thematics of science fiction. Essentially, Baudrillard studied societies, okay, not just of the West, but certainly concentrated there. Uh, surprise, surprise, he didn't really like what he was seeing in terms of the later. 20th century. Uh, in 1981, he publishes his book, Simulacra and Simulation. He argues that through repetition or disregard, okay, cliche, overuse, whatever, the value and the true meaning of a text. Now, a text doesn't need to be written. A text can be experienced, right? Anything that communicates a message is a text. So through that sort of disregard, repetitive use, cliche, whatever, the value and meaning of a text eradicates over time and is replaced instead with only the copy version or the facsimile. So like Wagner's Valkyrie, for example, it's inseparable from that Looney Tunes clip, right? (laughs) You know? Wabbitwikes. Kill the wabbit! Kill the wabbit! Yo ho! 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 Yo it's really just a milk commercial that we got back in the 90s. Drink milk, love life, fresh and cold. Make more of your energy. Drink milk, love life. Do all you do, living with vitality. Drink milk, love life. Drink milk, love life. Drink milk, love life. Drink milk. Drink milk, love life. Drink milk, love life. Now, I know it seems to suggest, it's kind of condescendingly so, that people don't care about the meaning of things. But it's more insipid than that, because the producers behind the advertising don't want you to know the true value. They want to use something to sell you a product. Yes. They're interested in selling the copy version of something, right? So um, when culture chooses the cheapened version enough and uses it 
repetitively, then it becomes the true narrative or the value or the heart, okay, mm-hmm. of the experience, the sign, if you will. It's lost. So in a nutshell, that's it. Now, if we return to our earlier example, which tied in with that destabilization of meta narratives, like communion, right, uh, from the Bishop of North America being reduced to an online click, yeah, forgiveness.com, if you want to call it that, that that suggests that people will line up to gain forgiveness for their sins like automatons, very separate from the belief in forgiveness. So in Jeter's world and cyberpunk world, many trade in a real thing for the quick and easy copy, and that's become a new normal for them. People chase digital highs, which are like kind of wired for end results only instead of gaining experiences. And they're willing to be ripped off for a cheaper version of something that gets them to the stimulus quick. Of course, future generations by extension, with the kids, the grandkids, they're more hardwired to the fakery, and they're more distant from the truth. So by growing up in a world of copies or reduced experiences, as Baudrillard would say, where information (laughs) of, yep, where information of and access to the original experience is controlled, their reality is formed from fakery, from facsimile, from small versions of what was really there to begin with. They become then easier victims for corporations, for profiteers, and this is the nutrient on which cyberpunk feeds and disseminates its texts, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, wow. I mean, I I get it. It's heady water that Baudrillard swims through, and he's channeling for us in his book, but it does link to cyberpunk. I mean, these, these... Realms of deception, fakery, control. Like, we see a lot of this in noir. A lot. But, you know, buddy, if if you mm-hmm. still don't believe Baudrillard, Simulacrum, its importance to science fiction, check out The Matrix. There's a reason that Keanu Reeves' Neo stores his computer files in a copy of that book, Simulacrum and Simulation. Uh, just hit me where I remember that's that. that's what he does. Um, that's right. Ah, that, that's right. So, this this idea of living in a world made of fakeness copies that are just restored from facsimiles, right? Now, taking that to my final point, I promise, we're getting to the the, the summary, guys. But the other thing that's huge in cyberpunk is this leaning on nostalgia. And we see it a lot in noir, we see it a lot in other science fiction genres, but definitely here. The reason why we have a nostalgic society is because they can't access the true experiences anymore. There's a sadness, there's a longing, there's that sort of heartbreak And more specifically, I guess more generally, cultural loss is mediated through nostalgia. You know, Mm -hmm. we see the loss of culture through nostalgic want. So art, music, history, like these things, which are often uh, history. Yeah, I mean, these are relegated in our own world, aren't they? They're restricted. Uh, they're, They're rendered unimportant because, you know, we don't need that story to get the fix. No. And you can see how the connection to our society is very alive here. Particularly, yes. So... We got salacious appetites, which are separated people from experiences of art and culture and creativity, and they look for it through nostalgia. So finally, I guess the trademark of cyberpunk and the component part of every novel I've ever experienced in this genre, buddy, is the merging of a body with a machine. Now, I mean, machine might have quotation marks around it here. You know, I mean, in all cyberpunk stories, you can bet that science and technology have found a way into bed together. Okay. Well, into or, bed with biology. Into biolo- bed with yeah. biological incorporation. Yeah. 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 The meshing of those two things together. You know, and that really makes me yeah. think too of, uh, yeah. of the idea of body horror as well. I mean, if you ever seen mm-hmm. David mm-hmm. Cronenberg's uh, Videodrome, that is a perfect, yeah, great, that great is great a example. perfect yeah. example of the cyber, of cyberpunk. Yeah. 
ideas at work. Yeah, yeah, totally is. And you're right. I mean, we think less about, we think less like artificial limbs and more like nanobots. You know, if we can get our mind to that place, you're, you're leaning more into the cyberpunk world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So cyberpunk is interesting stuff. I know that's a lot to chew on everybody. And I was just kind of racing through my notes here, talking away, but I feel like because it's the first time we've explored a novel like this. And when we went and did the Sherlock Holmes stuff, when we did the Raymond Chandler stuff, we were in the context of that too. We looked at the literary context of those genres mm-hmm. and the evolution of the detective story. So I think it's only fair that before we crack on with a review of noir, we do indeed share that info yes. because it is a crime story. It is a detective story, but it's uniquely a cyberpunk story as well. So I appreciate your patience with that, buddy. No, uh, no, no problem. It's a crossover adventure here. Yeah. If I may make uh, one th- connection too, is that uh, there is that word again, connection, which you read about a lot in the mm. in the book noir. Uh, we do, yeah. yeah. That really interested me that that they, uh, that was elevated to almost like a blasphemy in a way, like that was. Well, it was, yeah. Yeah, a pejorative term. Yeah. Pe- pejorative term, yeah, absolutely. Basically, the idea that the connecting would be the would be the future f word of this society. Mm-hmm. Um, it just goes to show deep down the resentment that's there for these lost people that they're using this word, it, world, this word in a sense of irony in terms of uh, to describe the sexual act in a vulgar way yep. to describe yep. the, uh, the whole experience of connecting is actually an abomination. And the people know deep down that the direction that they're going into, into with the society is not a good direction. And there's that. Yeah. And that's why there's a, a yearning for nostalgia and the past and history in particular uh, for these characters mm-hmm. and particularly the protagonist of the story. And that also goes down to the fundamentals of noir because the idea of a film noir in particular, because it's the idea of the everyday man uh, who's up against a system of corruption, of um, breaking barriers in terms of storytelling about sexuality, about moral ambiguity, um, the corruption of, of of political institutions, of cultural mm-hmm. institutions, and living in that society and understanding that, you know, you either live the way they tell you, and if you go outside the way that, if you go outside of that path, then you're going to either be, yeah. through your own ambitions, you're going to maybe mm-hmm. succeed, or you're going to have to take the wrong path to get to that point of success that everyone else has. You try to break that system, and it will destroy you. And I think that is something that yeah. noir has infused into cyberpunk and maybe even influenced cyberpunk in a way for how revolutionary the storytelling was, especially in Hollywood cinema at the time. So I present that yeah. as sort of my segue towards cyberpunk being what it is coming out of science fiction, you know, out of uh, the, the sci-fi B movies of the fifties, out of Rod Serling, out of um, Philip K. Dick and Gibson and all the like, you know, it's all connected. For sure. <laughs> Again. It's all connected, yeah. Oh, that word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so why don't we move over to a summary of noir, a plot summary. Now, this is one of the trickier plot summaries that we've had to do <laughs> on Lighting the Pipes. I will give you a, a little heads up, everyone, that it is kind of a podcast episode in and of itself. Um, nearly 30 minutes on a plot summary, and that's been pared down. So Josh and I put a lot of work into this episode. If you know the story of noir and you're checking this out to see what we thought of the book, then you can skip ahead 30 minutes, guys. We encourage you to do that. (laughs) But 
If you are kind of a newbie to it and you want to view this episode of Lighting the Pipes as three separate <laughs> episodes, then episode one has just ended where Josh and I talk about cyberpunk and KW Jeter. Episode two is just beginning, which is the plot summary of the novel Noir. And then we have the pipes themselves. Okay, so that's what we've done here for you. We just want to get that out on the table mm -hmm. and uh, cut it up and dice it and serve it the way <laughs> we've set it out. In a cylindrical container. And <laughs> that's right. Attach yeah. it to our In toaster. Enjoy. Welcome to the Gloss. It's the future here. No exact year, but somewhere up around the corner, relatively speaking. Not exactly your flying cars and space travel kind of future, but more tangible and a little more frightening. More like your corporations have edged out governments in setting the rules and executive orders are to close in on whatever's left of a consumer's right to life kind of future. Yeah, it's free market capitalism's worst self on show. Oh. And it's also dark here. First, literally, the urban sprawl of the Gloss, Greater Los Angeles, has grown to encompass most of the West Coast in a huge Pacific Rim that casts a shadow over those who live beneath or are burrowed inside of its giant tower complexes which pepper the gridded skyline, but also metaphorically dark. Life sucks. For most people, it just sucks. The poor are entirely disenfranchised, and the white collars work themselves to death, believing in the lie that it's just the way to go, while the super wealthy, the elite of society, spend their millions on vicarious, enhanced thrills and cybernetic adventure-seeking. At a glance, rapid technological growth and corporate greed have cut wounds in the culture of the world by creating a population of addicts and an indebted workforce. But the same forces also offer the balm. Create the sickness and treat the patient, with different versions of that sickness. Just keep that cycle going. But for our protagonist, McNihill, a snarky and jaded information cop, or asphead, as they are known to the collection agencies and businesses that they work for, things are uniquely dark on top of all of this. Keen to replace the visions of the real world with something more suitable to his tastes, McNihill went under the knife a decision that ultimately sold his wife into a limbo of servitude. Nevertheless, one intensive ocular procedure later, and McNihill views the world through a permanent monochrome filter, straight out of the noir films of the 1940s. The world around him is rendered through this filter, transforming people into hustlers, heavies, and wavy-haired femme fatales. Similarly, settings are amplified for him in the style of smoky barrooms and offices. Shadows and suspicion persist everywhere. It may seem at first a curious choice of perspective for one so firmly ensconced in a corrupt world of already harsh realities, but in a way, McNihill's sight is as much a weaponized strength as it is an aesthetic escape. It reminds him, and us, of the double-crossers, red herrings, and mistrust all around him, and permeating the corporate culture of the gloss. As Asphead, both in and after his employ with the ASCAP Corporation, McNihill investigates cases of copyright infringement and earns his bread and butter, if you can call it that, 
hunting down those criminals brazen enough to rip off, pirate, or otherwise tamper with the works of others. The nobility in this pursuit is fairly clear, and it helps to characterize McNihill in a positive way for us. I stop short of using the term hero, nothing is quite that simple in this cyberpunk world, but he's got a penchant for protecting true creativity. In this society of open exploitation and fabrication, where people chase digital highs instead of friendships, literally plug themselves into television sets or use avatars to achieve commodified climaxes online, a dude who believes in protecting true creation seems pretty honorable to us. But then there's his name. On the nose, McNihill doesn't believe in much of what he sees, trusts even less of it, and has long since given up caring about the motivations of the creeps and creepettes that he sees around. McNihill possesses a penchant for the past, particularly the symphonic and operatic world of composers like Gustav Mahler and Richard Wagner. His nostalgia for the expressive arts and their histories, which we, too, often take for granted in pursuit of more technological distraction, is heavy set throughout the novel, and a big part of our central character's personality. It's hard not to feel Jater's caveat in these moments, nudging us ever so gently into taking better stock and care of our artistic worlds while we still have them. His vision of the near future sees them being eradicated, or at least marginalized heavily. But more on those features a little later. How about a little geography? I think a lightly articulated map of McNihill's physical world is in order. South of LA's sprawling gloss is the land of the dead. Well, sort of dead. This is where McNihill's wife and others like her, citizens who died naturally but in debt, spend their time in a corporate purgatory of sorts. The premise is horrifically simple. If you die owing money and your body is intact, you'll be preserved at the moment of your death and reanimated to work off your debts doing menial jobs. Like an army of the dead, then, relocated south of the city sprawl proper, inhabitants here are isolated further and destined to die again, for real, once their debts are paid. But the interest on their reanimation all but guarantees they'll be active corpses for a long, long time. Further beyond this neighborhood, if that's the right word, is the wedge. Now this is where information goes to die, breed, or transform into new technologies. Think of it like a deviant skid row, once controlled by the human world, digital dangers, rogue software, and leaked secrets now call the Wedge their home. Here, in this fearsome space, is where cybernetic threats and pleasures abound. Impossible to police and tantalizing for the pleasure junkie, the Wedge is populated by prowlers. Computerized simulations, technologies, and sort of characters which interact and perform the bidding of the wealthy leaders of this crooked world and sometimes of their own desires. McNihill has some experience in the Wedge. In fact, we learn as the narrative evolves that it was while on assignment in the Wedge that he met his match in the enigmatic Verity, a powerful and villainous female force that resulted in his early retirement. Through Jeter's foreshadowing, we know that McNihill's return to this shadowy locale has been preordained. So, there's the central character and his world introduced. At least a little. And now for the strokes of the plot. Hold on to your seats. McNihill is propositioned by Harish, 
part of the top brass at Dinah Zauber, the big bad mega corporation with interests in nearly every part of social life. Specifically, some intellectual property has gone missing. Harish knows McNihill's specialty and asks him to investigate the death of a mid-level executive named Travelt who had this information. And his death isn't really the issue. Harish could care less about that, but instead, his prowler is on the loose in the wedge in possession of something that Harish wants back. Jeter wastes no time in identifying Harish as an antagonist. His smarm and mannerisms are pretty revolting. There's some light history here between Harish and McNihill as well, but readers are only given a feel of its narrative, no details. It doesn't really seem to matter for the moment. McNihill refuses the offer, but a considerable portion of the novel's first third is dedicated to Harish's manipulative attempts at getting McNihill to take the job. As intimated previously, Part of McNahill's hesitancy stems from the career-ending quagmire of returning to the Wedge. Safe from prosecution or punishment, thanks to numerous buy-offs and greasy deals with local authorities, Harish takes pleasure in doing his own dirty work, like hiring, and then firing, through the head, a cube bunny, think prostitute on the company Rolodex, to follow and seduce McNahill. It's during their post-coital encounter in the alleyway that we understand Harish is hatching a sinister plan. We don't know what, but we know McNihill is being used to execute at least part of it. Observed killing the girl, Harish dispatches a homeless guy without hesitation and carries on his way. Clearly, he holds no regard for human life, particularly if that life rests below him in social or economic standing, which nearly everyone does. Part of Harish's plan, though, to send McNahill into the wedge involves an insurance policy in the form of a young drifter named November. While Jeter's narrative moves relentlessly in and around the gloss, following McNihill on brief exploits here and there in the first third of the novel, he's tailed by this young woman for hire. Harish lines November up to complete the job in the event that McNahill won't or can't be manipulated but his backup plan is resourceful and shrewd. Sure, she has debts to pay off, lots of them, but she's also curious about McNihill and wonders if they mightn't team up to get the job done together. She goes as far as journeying south and meeting with his ex, dead, wife. The purpose of this sequence is binary. On one hand, yes, it enables us to access this land of the dead whose denizens live cheap and work cheaper in the hopes of someday trading in the X's in their eyes for proper eternal sleep. But it also helps characterize November as more than just a plan B for Harish. We learn, for instance, that she has EMP implants in her fingertips that allow her to induce orgasmic fits into her adversaries. She's a character to watch out for and one who might just be on McNihill's side. One of the more interesting visits made by McNihill in the early stages of his unofficial detective work, remember he technically refused the job, at least at this point, is to the Bishop of North America. He's there to see what data might be retrieved from the crucifix ID totem that Traveld was wearing when he died. The bishop is a haggard man, burnt out and looking more like a junkie than a man of the cloth. His apartment, from where he does his spiritual work, you know, blessing, forgiving, and otherwise feeding the congregations of people who have forgotten what they're there for, 
it's even more dingy than McNeil Hills. The bishop is exhausted from the weight of all his online activity, but is more or less content with a grotty existence. Religion in the gloss has become a cheap drug, a facsimile of what it once was. After some talk about sin and salvation, a pusher's job on the fringe of faith, the bishop accesses Travelt's data. It's interesting to learn that he was truly afraid, and that he'd gotten himself in too deep, and McNihill starts to warm to the idea of taking this case. Travelt felt enough guilt over his behavior with Dinah Zauber and the Prowler gift which Harish gave him, that he actually received the sacrament in person, which the bishop tells us is a very strange thing these days. Jeter uses this scene to nudge the story along, but also to communicate just how far God has been alienated and commodified in the gloss. McNihill then travels to visit his dead wife, a lengthy and descriptive episode from the novel which first outlines the story of evolutionary greed that led to the gloss's development, and secondly, demonstrates McNihill's compassion and internal conflict quite nicely for the reader. Through their conversation, and the narrative asides, we learn how McNihill used her insurance money to help with his operation, instead of covering her debts, and how he misses being with her, and is remorseful for really messing her over. He confides in her that he's going to take the job, and she, almost spectrally aware of things, warns him about verity and to be careful of revisiting dark places. On the way back from the land of the dead, his train is derailed by an explosion which sends him and the trailing November hurtling through the air. The reader, too, is thrown quickly forward, and we find ourselves outsiders to the text, struggling to make sense of things with similar disorientation. Harish almost immediately shows up, smarmily bragging over the entire accident, as it was he who set it up, an exhibition of his strength and Dinah Zauber's influence, we assume, and he puts the screws to McNeil again. More information about the job is offered, specifically what Travelt's Prowler escaped with was a program called TAYAC, an acronym standing for Turd in a Can. Yes, for real. Harish doesn't reveal, nor do we really need, the details, but McNeil understands that it's copyrighted software, and Dinah Zauber wants it back. Moreover, he name-drops Verity, feminine overlord of the Wedge, as the common enemy that they share. Not only does she have this information, which Harish wants back, but she's also the career-ending force that cost McNeil his job with that assignment in the Wedge, so the case is offering him a chance to reclaim his reputation and retrieve the information. Now, this is a weighty scene, and readers are forced to be patient, and the characters talk through corporate control, technology of prowlers, Tyak's importance, Verity's threat, and McNeil's failed final mission. Harish holds this interview with McNeil, if we can call it an interview, at the crash site, upheld in an illuminated form or crucifix, complete with digital stigmata. The imagery is weird, and while its thematic message is clear, I'd be lying if I said I understood why Jeter opted for this bit of irony. But it's just one of many oddities in the novel's first half that Jeter conjures up to impress this world and its modified characters upon the reader. The gloss is a crowded place, and the narrative is unforgiving in its show-first-explain-later approach. Jeter's exposition is dense, never letting up on descriptive phrases or expository rendering, 
and the mixed metaphors reproduced in noir at an alarming rate. Nevertheless, the story picks up speed here once McNahill decides to investigate, and so, too, thankfully, can this summary. The second part of the novel opens up with November being visited by her debt collector, an agency heavy who cuts her some slack because the powers that be know she's working with McNihill on a Dinah Zauber job. We see her commitment to self-preservation here, and we admire her tenacity as Jeter prepares for her character to mix more heavily with the protagonist. McNihill, meanwhile, heads to Seattle to catch a copyright thief who has been pirating old books and films, before he meets with the perpetrator, however, he incites a riot by harassing some panhandling folk who have made a home of an abandoned 747. The trophy system, as it's called, is both demonstrated and lengthily explained here as McNahill meets with the youth in a movie theater, jellifies his head in stasis, and brings him back to the aptly named End Zone Hotel to complete the job. Passing the stupefied patrons linked literally up to television sets, McNihill drags the adolescent perp up to his room, opens a toolkit out of the darkest Q-branch imaginings, and gets to work. The little machines take action under McNihill's direction and soon extricate the infringer's spinal nerve channel and the necessary brain tissue to preserve a cognitive awareness. Contained within a case, McNihill escapes with his trophy, but first has to escape the angry and dispossessed 747 mob. They've been setting fire to the streets and the hotel, and the end zone starts to burn. Only through November's help, who'd been shadowing him, does McNahill get away. Unfortunately, she is left to perish, at least for the time being. Back in the gloss, the purpose of the Seattle adventure comes into focus when McNihill visits Alex Turbiner, a retired novelist. The old man is presented the cerebral trophy of the Seattle kid, his career works pirate, and sets about installing the new speaker wire into his hi-fi. Yeah, for real. Amplified pain for the perp whose awareness was preserved in the trophy process. Now that's some sort of punishment. Turbiner is like a kid on Christmas as he connects the wire and allows for Mahler's Resurrection Symphony to sound through his flat For a few real moments, as the two characters speak in their friendly way, we like and can relate to this relationship between McNihill and Turbiner. It appears to be based on a mutual respect and a love of the arts. But, like everything else in this story, darkness comes calling, and the authentic seems fabricated. Harish needed a blackmailing point to make sure McNihill did the wedge job for him, so conspired with Turbiner to set him up. Turbiner gave the kid in Seattle, whose awareness was now cruising through his speakers, 30 days of copyright allowance, meaning that when McNahill carried out his job on the thief, he wasn't actually a thief. Hanging by the prospect of a murder charge, McNihill ostensibly becomes Harish's pooch for the remainder of the mission, or so the exec would like to believe. In typical Jeter fashion, we only get the full picture of this fascinating setup after we've been dragged through the action dizzyingly. Part 3 of Noir opens with McNihill visiting Adder Klom, a business doctor who works on behalf of the Snake Medicine Corporation, 
to perform a diverse range of surgical and cybernetic jobs for clients. Dinah Zauber is top of the list. He showcases his products and generally plays the salesman part, but McNihill is more interested in learning about the work that had been done on Travelt, including a V-shaped tattoo with a banner displaying the mysterious name Lazel Teotl. The same name he saw flashed on the bishop's computer screen earlier as well, so McNihill's suspicions are raised. He hasn't put it all together yet, but there's more at stake here than just retrieving lost software. And though we only learn of this thinking later, McNihill has pretty much figured out by this point just how insipid Harish's plan for him is. November, meanwhile, is recovering in the burn unit. Her fall through the Endzone Hotel all but killed her, and she would already be a corpse, like McNihill's wife, if not for the work that the machinery was doing to keep her alive. Harish and McNihill meet over her sleeping, suspended body and cut a deal. McNihill accepts all Harish's conditions of employment to enter the wedge and to risk facing Verity again in pursuit of the Tayak software, so long as he puts his fee towards November's skin grafting and full recovery. He also wants her debts wiped off. Harish cannot believe what he's hearing from McNihill, essentially condemning himself to a life of servitude and debt. Who would give up their own chance of salvation for another, nearly a stranger, especially in this world? He agrees heartily, and November's burned, flailed body is immediately prepped for surgery with the push of a few buttons. We don't know it at the time, but McNihill is already three steps ahead. In order to enter and integrate into the wedge, the asp head is going to need some work done. The adder clome works his magic, and a few scenes later, McNihill has all but been transformed into a prowler. All but being the operative phrase. When he reaches the wedge, McNihill meets cloud storage gone mad. Technology here is out of control. Off the hook. Choose whatever platitude you want. Things are intense. His guide is the ultimate barfly, an achingly attractive prowler figure with a detached sense of self and motivated by profit and sex. She's part of a complex AI service that preys on human fantasy and whose kinetic energy, as McNihill discovers, really packs a punch via her kiss. After McNihill deliberately blows a hole in the bar's ceiling with his Tannhauser, they start a virtual journey of discovery, through his though his body remains in the bar. Yeah, it's pretty hold on to your seats at this point. She explains for McNihill that prowlers hold humans responsible for giving them an emotional range, something that they never asked for. The Adderclome then makes an appearance again, and among other things, he and the Ultimate Barfly explain to McNihill that tattoos like those put onto Travelt are programmed with memory and experiences which connect directly into the free space in the brain's occipital lobe. This is home to the visual and pleasure centers of human consciousness. By programming memory into tattoos, physical things, they have more longevity. The trouble is, when you roll the dice with cybernetic highs, you don't always get a choice of what ends up occupying your brain. So that's what Tiak is all about. Dinosaur's way of controlling memories and experiences on people's skin. Selling sex and pleasure stimulus through tattoo technology to keep them coming back for more. And so we reach the last stretch. 
Part 4 of the novel is where Jeter threads the literal, virtual, and memory worlds all together with an unforgiving drive to elicit the story's conclusion. November, meanwhile, is fully recovered and gets used to her new skin. Harish sends her up north, near the Endzone Hotel in a private car. Why? We're not quite sure. Neither is she. But the buildings around her are ashen and ruined, presumably from the riot McNihill incited a wee while back. Things go from weird to weirder very quick. A media team is camping out when she arrives, hovered over the sea on booms, following the movements and reporting on the giant water of sterile nutrient medium that has washed ashore, comprised at first glance of the same life-preserving liquid in which November herself was suspended following her burns. It's transforming the coast. Now, you'd be forgiven for picturing an algal bloom or something of the like, but no, Jeter goes way darker, giving us what the slap-happy cameraman celebrates as the polyorganism of the century. Beneath the gelatinous blanket that covers and protects the polyorganism is a swirling mass of eviscerated but still living bodies, pleasure tattoos, skeletal shapes, organs, all engaged in primal, rubbery fornication. The crews are waiting for their next big moment, when the doldrum of the ocean swells and turns to storm. Like all the Earth's waters, this one has a tempestuous and spontaneous life of its own. Meanwhile, McNihill and the ultimate barfly are still moving through memories in and about the wedge, talking dinosaur and digging up the past. Part of that excavation is McNihill's confession that Verity was a smokescreen, a fabrication that he came up with to excuse his team's failure in the wedge. He fed the collection agency enough to believe the lie and collected his payment before leaving. So, our protagonist hasn't always been so honorable. But in a world of corruptible greys, where the goods are ambiguous at best and the bads are very bad, we shouldn't be surprised. And we aren't. But McNihill remains in heroic focus insofar as he wants to bring Harish down. With the Barfly's help as a guide, McNihill returns to the Endzone Hotel, where he closes in on Travelt's Prowler. Using the stereo wire that he ripped from Turbiner's amp after being betrayed by the novelist, McNihill taps into the cube bunny and learns what he already knew. The rest of the story is then told in reverse, sort of through November's third person, once Harish shows up. It seems that the execs' hubris and ego just couldn't help but feed it themselves once Travelt's prowler was located. He swoops down from the angry sky in a dinosaur jet and lands on the burned husk of the Endzone Hotel to spill all and laugh at how stupid McNihill has been. November is there too, as he wanted her to see his cleverness. As the final showdown unfolds, it's revealed, among other things, that turd in a can, Tiak, was really just the visible part of that manipulative iceberg that he had been forming. Harish was really trying to sell turd on a wire, or tua, an even more malevolent project to exploit the science of addiction and brain physiology, and to use McNihill as a host to carry, first through sex with the cube bunny, and then spread, by entering the wedge, this new disease to the masses. As a storm rages and that gelatinous sea of sex below them surges, 
Harish shoots McNahill through the chest and gloats over his brilliance. But it's McNahill that has the last laugh. The bullets have no effect. Why? Because he's already dead. After his chat with Harish in the hospital, he started making sense of the bigger picture. He managed to do this because his noir-esque filter allows him to interpret metaphor differently. And all Harish's chat about venereal disease and technology started connecting up for him. Knowing that he'd be reanimated to complete his job and to repay his debts, those accrued by paying off November's procedures, McNihill shot himself through the heart to ensure he'd be a corpse when he entered the wedge. A working corpse. But to spread a disease to be the vector that Harish was planning on, he'd need to be alive. McNihill seized the opportunity once he figured out turd on a wire and caught sight of its horrific character to screw over Dinosaur and Harish. Conveniently, it would also ensure that he could spend time with his wife once again. So, a twisted and touching love story permeates the conclusion of Noir, and as the sex ocean consumes what's left of the Endzone Hotel, Harish falls to his death to join the horrors under the sea that his life work helped to create. The story ends, finally, with a short scene of November. She's sitting on a train, telling McNihill's story to a professional child. Now, if noir is in any way prophetic, if the gloss which Jeter builds is meant to be a possible look at our own future, however hyperbolic, then it is bleak. Undeniably bleak. Its world is dark, perverse, and full of explicit corruptions that try to overwhelm and control completely. Despite their efforts, however, despite their suffocating power, they aren't wholly capable of keeping the light and spirit from entering. McNihill is a damaged anti-hero to be sure, but his adventure isn't entirely without hope. Maybe we're not entirely hopeless either. But it doesn't look good at least through Jeter's eyes. Right, so there you are, everybody. We're back. Well, I thought my anatomy of a murder summary was uh, a challenge. I can't imagine what you went through to go through that. Maybe you probably felt all the time, or perhaps you were perpetually feeling the way I was when I was trying to read this book in a week. Uh, you recreated that experience of eternal Sisyphean suffering. <laughs> Forgetting, <laughs> Yeah. Um, good oh, job. Roll man. that stone, buddy. Roll that stone. Roll that stone, yeah. Absolutely. Eat that liver, you know, like uh, over and over Mm -hmm, again. mm -hmm. Uh, I think the mythological illusion applies pretty well. It does. But it's time to light our pipes, as we do all the time. Our pipes is our scoring acronym. P stands for principal, so the main character or characters in the story. The I is for investigation. Now, not just the plot, but also how that plot is laid out, delivered, written, uh, the writer's style. 
We then have our other P for our perpetrator, our villain or villains, if indeed there is a clear-cut one. E stands for environs, the environmental factors, the settings, the insides, outsides of the world created. And then the S for our secondary or supporting cast of characters that inhabit the world of the book or the story. We score each feature out of five, by the way, which gives us our index. Now, you've been a friend of the show for a while. You know that that's what we do. Yes. But in case you're new to it, um, yeah, that's, that's how we get our index for scoring and our review. So... My man, I feel as though I have taken the lead on a lot of uh, a lot of this episode. Quite Just happily, a little too. I, 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 that's, not, that's not of a criticism. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm quite happy to have done that. But I'd like to hear your uh, impressions first on the principal. So, buddy, talk to me about John McNeil. I referred to him as McNeil. I, I know, I, I know that McNeil, McNeil. Yes, yeah, I know okay, that. Yeah. Uh, Jeter is trying to Neilism, make a, yeah. a jump on, on nihilism, obviously. But at the same yes, time, I called him McNeil because I kind of wanted to honor the yes. pun because it gives him a very detective sounding name. Uh, it does. Yes. But you can also call yeah. him McNeil and that works too. I mean, that's, that's, well, that's what, that's what I did in my summary just because yeah. I wanted to amplify yeah. the deliberate, the deliberate mark on, uh, on Jeter's part, you know, a lot of deliberations here for sure. Uh, yeah. So McNeil or McNeil, whatever you prefer to call him, the um, the asp head, as he's called. Now, this I always wanted to ask you about the idea of the asp head. Sure. When I think of the asp yeah. head, I, I don't know. I, I picture Alexandria, twenty nine BC, post Actium, and Cleopatra, you know, giving her hand uh. to the giving her <laughs> breast to the asp. So, is there a particular yeah. reason yeah. you think he chose this term, asp head? Sorry, yeah, asp head. Well. I'm not actually sure. I think that uh, obviously there's there's an image of the snake, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always been sinister, right? Um, yes. Maybe has something to do with the fact that he he has, you know, uh, he lurks, he lingers, he slinks about. I don't, I don't know. I, I've always felt like it's a, it's a bit of a slang, really, just kind of a like a tokenistic term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's kind of how I've, I've reviewed it. Yeah, I, I can see that the asp head is sort of in that in that fashion, and the idea too of like if you think of the, the silhouette of an asp, I suppose with like the big like with the mm-hmm, with, with the uh, expanding head, and then you have the snaky body. <laughs> you can almost also picture the yeah. idea of a, a a human nervous system. So you have like the brain, the cl- the clubbish brain at the top, and then you have the spinal cord. Which that so that so the idea of asp head kind of connecting with Blade Runner or Hunter in this particular sense indicates you know what mm-hmm. they do for these these corporations is they punish copyright infringers essentially so that's right yeah so that's an interesting um, I thought that was an interesting name for his profession uh, but still they're also trying to permeate that into a, a believable world for the world building of the story so so that you kind of just automatically grasp onto it like this is a term that you'll have to learn this is part of the society it makes it feel lived in it, ge- it gives you that meta experience so props mm-hmm. to Jeter for that particular invention and our character McNeil, be- McNeil being one of them now he adheres to his own moral code, you know, inspired by the detectives of the film noir he um, he adores. Um, that black and mm-hmm, white, mm-hmm. you know, he literally sees the world. He literally and he literally, because of the implants, sees the world in black and white. And that's right. And so, and what's interesting though is that there's a there's a, an ambiguity to his treatment to IP theft. 
But because the attitude that these people deserve death for this type of, for piracy, essentially, yeah. for, for mm-hmm. copyright mm-hmm. piracy, uh, that creates a moral ambiguity to his character. But it's also ingrained into the culture that he lives in. So it's almost forgivable based on the society that he lives in. Uh, as shocking as yeah. it is for us to experience. Now, he wants to do right by his dead wife. Again, that code of honor, that feeling that he has he has a redemptive tale in his own way. and Even though he screwed her over in the first place. Even though he screwed her over he, in, yeah. in, in the first uh-huh. place. And then, of course, even to his favorite author, Turbiner, you know, there's a sense of chivalry with him in regard to November as well, despite the ulterior motives for paying for her treatment. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, with these traits, there he comes across as an amalgamation of other detective archetypes that we've seen before. He's, in terms of writing, he's thinly, he's thinly sketched, but yet there's something intriguing mm-hmm. about him, but we only get a surface scan of his character. And I'm really glad to hear you say that because I've read the book a couple of times. Uh, the first time I read it, like 20 years ago, when it first came out, and then again recently. Uh, but I do feel that it is a thinly sketched character. And perhaps that's what Jeter's going for. Maybe it is. Maybe he needs to go that way so that the, the kind of white knight features of his character come across. Like, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure, but it's, I agree it, with what you're saying there. Yeah, it's like a meta expression of character that he's trying to present in the storytelling. And while that might make the story endure as a literary work, in terms of, uh, of a character that I was, you know, for me to be emotionally attached to, in terms of other characters like him that we've seen in this genre, I just found him sort of uh, an archetype. Uh, and mm-hmm. and it's very clear that it is. But does that make it enjoyable? Like, that's... That's exactly, yeah, that's right. That's the question, I guess, people and, and, have and, come down And on. that's a deep question that you come with exactly with this particular story. So as a whole, I passed the principle. I gave him a three out of, I gave him a three out of five, but we're just on the surface here. We're getting the elements, the tropes. It's all there. There's some interesting faucets to his character. Absolutely. I don't deny that, but I found that like the world that he was in and the language of conveying that world sort of inundates him. And he's just there on the, on a surface struggling and, going with the flow of of the of the mighty river that uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jeter is giving us this unstoppable river or this unstoppable human mass sort of you know mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. crashing against uh, the uh, the build the the hotel uh, as it does yeah, in the yeah. climax <laughs> that's right the sex ocean um yes I I, I wonder dude like if because I had the exact same trouble with, with the character. I liked him, but I could see that he was thinly sketched. I just wonder if, um, if like, is Jeter trying to give us a character story? Because he certainly has an arc, but he overwhelms us with so much world building and so much environmental stimulus that the character kind of gets lost within it. And so, yes, as a protagonist, he's engaging. He's interesting. He doesn't have a lot of personality, I didn't find, McNeil. I didn't find that he had, like, oh, yeah, that's the thing he says. Well, yeah, he says, wake up and smell, you know, your dead corpse's dreams or whatever it is. He's got that saying. Like, all, you know, Bogey's got his sayings, too. Exactly. I get get it. (laughs) I get it. But he, um, I, I did find him tough to really get to know. But I wonder if that's deliberate as well on... 
you know, he's swimming against the tide. And if that's what Jeter is wanting us to recognize, that here, even a guy who tries hard is tough to, is tough to get behind because uh, the strength of the tide against which he's swimming, you know, he's trying to be good. I liked the white knight features, to borrow that phrase from a few moments the ago, Marlowe, of his the character. Chandlerian the Chandlerian aspects. Yeah, the yeah. Chandlerian aspects, but also the fact that in this world of corruption and simulacrum, as we said earlier, you know, before we uh, we cut to our... Uh, before we cut to our summary, in this world where everything is cheap and easy, here's a guy whose job it is to punish people who make it cheap and easy. And I thought, that's kind of noble, you know, that is noble. And it's not really Galahad, I get it, <laughs> but it kind of is. Do you know what I mean? I suppose. It seems to me that, like, even though McNeil, uh is is yearning for the days of the past and things were he might be yearning a bit too much to me i think like he's a bit extreme he's almost reminding me of like a crusader okay. like a hospitaler or a templar okay. and yeah. he's yeah. doing these i guess what is essentially uh murder i yeah, it's essentially what it is uh-huh. a murder uh-huh. of people who are <laughs> yeah, simply thieving exactly yeah. simply stealing just intellectual property because the corporations force people to do that they're not the problem they're stealing they're stealing we got we're, we're in a situation here in this society where human life is worthless and next to intellectual property like the very fact mm-hmm. that like you know some people get so obsessed with like you know franchises like star wars or star trek or something like that and the fact that that would in the future have dominance like if you if for example like if someone pirate in this future if someone pirated the star wars trilogy and gave it out to everyone cheap and easy as you said there people in society would would stand by and allow them to be absolutely like vivisected annihilated annihilated (laughs) their whole existence not annihilated and then perpetually punished by the technology they have at this time to preserve their conscience in in, in a sense to uh, electronic device where they would be suffering for until the wire phrase i i I suppose (laughs) that's Um, right yeah it's it's a hellish concept it's a horrific concept it's a hellish concept and yet and yet you see corporations go after little guys all the time. Yeah. You see and hear about the court cases, you know. I mean, these are not strange things to be targeted by large corporations, made examples of. Like, there is a blueprint for Not to the draconian extreme, but, but yeah. Extremity. Yes. But the blueprint is here in our society. So, it's it's a really complex thing that McNeil's done, uh, that, that he does here. But, uh, you know, I like, I like that through him we get to see a lot of these lost art and expressive forms of pleasure. You know, there's a lot in here about um, Mahler's Resurrection Symphony, which uh, is separate. It's its own text about redemption and, you know, resaving. I remember when I read the book the first time, I got the the German uh, uh, text, you know, so I could read it, the translation, and uh, appreciate the thematics of it. I mean, there's so much going on here with uh, Mahler's Second Symphony. It it shows up not just once, not just twice, but three times, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, has a lot to do with, like, saving oneself and looking your maker in the eye. And I think there's a lot of those sort of crossover themes. But... 
also we get, you know, Coolridge, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. You get Disney, which has been corrupted into Disnanny, right? Which is essentially what your Disney app does on the TV now. It raises your kids for you. I mean, there's a lot of prophecy in the way technology and the nostalgia has been corrupted. And we see living evidence within the pages of the text of Baudrillard's simulacrum. We see it. And it's pointed out for us very clearly. So... I like how McNeil kind of negotiates that world and gives us the the want for a more authentic creative experience. I think that does make him a little bit more than just thinly sketched. But I think that's the part that Jeter wants you to recognize within yourself, which is that if you don't if you don't take stock of how you as an individual disregard and just allow art history to just flow over you, then it's going to be fucking gone, man. It's going to be gone. Someone's going to profit out of it if you're not paying attention to what's around you. Do you know, I think that there's a lot of that fear yeah. in the book. But the irony of it is, is that harsh measures, um, if you think, for example, uh, back into the 19th century, there was something called the bloody code in England. And this uh-huh. was where they basically hanged you for everything up until like in the 1820s, after the Regency, they started appealing these laws and changing them because of, you know, compassion for human beings started to develop. Uh, there was a there was religious organizations getting involved in helping the poor. So they stopped, you know, hanging 10-year-old boys for stealing bread. You know, they finally stopped that, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and but this is the time, but right now, this society where the transition period that they're in, as, as, as evoked in this novel, is that they're at a period now where the the wealthy and the, the, there is almost like an aristocratic society in control of, of these corporations and property theft in particular is they're put they're applying the bloody code to uh this society and the irony mm-hmm. is is that they don't care about the original meanings of these texts they're only concerned that someone's original ideas are being stolen because if someone can steal their original ideas even from like an individual author like Turbiner, for example, that anyone can steal mm-hmm. the IP belonging to powerful corporations as well. And that would bring That's down right. the whole yeah. system. So this is the whole idea of even like, you know, long, like Edward the first creating um, the idea of being drawn and quartered to punish yeah. like all the rebellions that were going up against him when he tried to take over all of England, uh, like Wales, for example, the idea of drawn and quartering was to show the public that we're not going to stand for this. And so the measures that they're showing here is the same sort of attitude where we need to do something to scare the shit out of people so they don't infringe upon this. But we don't really care mm-hmm. about what the original meaning of these texts are, just as long as oh, as long as someone is going after them, that's all we care about. Yet McNihill, mm-hmm. he both, uh, I guess, living in the society that he does now, he he accepts the fact that this is the measures that we need to take to preserve intellectual property, but he doesn't respected in the way that like for example harris respects it like this is how we keep Mm -hmm, society mm -hmm. under our control harris is like no there is a more he feels that there is a moral obligation to punish people for this theft despite how extreme it might seem to us right yes which Um, which adds an extra level of irony to his name because he isn't technically nihilistic is he he does have values and does feel uh, towards people, places. He does have that emotional response and that want, that lean towards the compassionate. Like it is there within him, mm-hmm. um, as you say, with his wife. And yes. yeah, the way he the way he kind of negotiates the last third of the book so that November's recovery helps him get what he wants in, in the end, that's that's fine too. Maybe maybe before we, we, we leave him, I by the way gave him a three as well. 
a three out of five. But before we leave McNeil, 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 whatever you choose, why don't you say something more about his relationship with his wife? Because this is a curious part of the story, and I think it's a very personable part of the story as well. He's not above sleeping casual sex style. He doesn't feel remorse over that. And yet he does feel remorse, the cube bunny, uh, or Travelt's prowler, if you prefer. Mm-hmm. But he does he does feel remorse for kind of screwing over his wife and not screwing her over that way, but screwing yeah. her over financially. Yeah, what well, do that's you think the, of that whole setup. That's the chivalrous aspect to his character that gives him a redemption arc in terms of uh, narrative structure that we are to follow. This has a story beyond you know the meta narrative that jeter is trying to espouse here about the society all the world building that he's doing all of the florid you know compositions that he has in between all these scenes as he as he waxes philosophy on this particular world Mm -hmm. and and whatnot you know this idea of connecting organics with technology everything is like has sexual connotation in in the story Mm -hmm. and the idea of like this man who wants to have who has almost a monogamistic connection to his wife and wants to do right by her uh it feels that, uh, you know, this is something that's just, it, it reinforces his character and, and makes him a little more interesting uh, than, than, as mm-hmm. we said, the, the thinly sketched portrayal uh, that we have brought to reviewing his character. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, um, he is really just our guide. He's our eyes through this. But I don't know how you felt about this uh, ocular change that he has transforming his vision into the noir vision. I kind of forgot about that, about, I feel like halfway through the story, Jeter drops off the references and we're just meant to be in his line of vision then, you know? Kind of. at the end, it comes back. And I think that's deliberate because I think at the end, where we learn that metaphorically, it was through his vision that he learned what Harish's trick was all about. I think that it's kind of deliberate on Jeter's part. He didn't want to keep giving us more and more references of that metaphorical understanding of the world because he was going to need that for the big reveal. Yeah, it's almost like there was sort of like this membrane or nexus, if you will, uh, of of like the world that he was seeing at the beginning of the story. And he was, oh, okay, so basically he uses these lenses so that he can live out his nostalgia, right? This, he uses these implants so that he can live out his nostalgia and uh, of the film noirs, you know, like there's name drops all over the place. Like I found it really interesting that he mentioned uh, the Lodger, uh, which is a film in, mm, like, from yeah. not the yeah. Hitchcock one, but the one with Laird nope. Krieger from '44, which is yeah. about Jack the Ripper. And if anyone listened to the, our, my Laura podcast, I talked about the casting of Laird, the initial how Zanuck wanted uh, Laird Krieger to play the role of Waldo Lidecker. That was just really coincidental uh-huh. to be honest uh but all the names that they're all the name drops that you see in there like uh Elizabeth scott or a bogart title that no one's really heard of po- in terms of popularity which is dead reckoning which was a little noir that he did outside of you know the big howard hawks productions that he was in at the time so it just goes to show that um McNeil was very adept into th- that particular nostalgia and th- there's a there's a so the name drops are very clear from the very beginning and then all of a sudden as you said they just disappear because all of a sudden uh-huh. the world of noir that black and white fictional world that Harish was sort of dismissing was make was very dismissive and contemptuous of that ends up biting them in the ass because McNeil uses this to his advantage that's and right so yeah, he, there, yeah. there's a line where essentially where I think it's when he goes in with the uh, with the ultimate barfly, and that's when it starts mm-hmm. connecting 
uh, that's when, when like the noir world becomes fully real to him. And we, the reader, we feel that it's almost like it's a flawless transition, if you will, between that nostalgia into reality. Uh, I probably mm-hmm. butchered that, but that's sort of the way I'm viewing it. I hope we're on the same wavelength there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we are on the same wavelength. Um, what did you make of the fact that McNeil has this shunt into the amygdalic part of his brain to stop him from feeling fear? I thought that was really interesting. Does that make him, I mean, we talk about cybernetics. Does that, does that make him better at his job because he can't technically feel the fear that we would feel as that flight fight response? Like he's just geared to fight? Like, is that how yeah. you read it? Yeah, absolutely. That idea that, you know, he has no fear, Mm. so therefore he will take any risk, you know, to get the job done. And this also gives him the sort of the forced fictional uh, fearlessness that the character that these no wires would exhibit. Needs, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you know what I mean? So it allows, but it also sort of automatons his character a little bit too. Yeah. Now we should say that that shunt was put in by the ASDAC Corporation when he was a fully fledged ASPED. Yeah. And that was part of his job as a the copyright infringement officer. Yeah, yeah, collection agency. But it does fit, as you say, very nicely into the characterization of the noir protagonists as well. You know, those detectives who just kind of get on with it. And yeah, I, having to thinking about that idea of the the noir eye implants, I found it sort of on on the surface. I not on the surface. I fully felt that it seemed like a frivolous gimmick to justify the noir mm-hmm. themes in the story. Mm-hmm. But now that we kind of got into it and you, you, how you asked me about how it sort of transitions into reality by midway through the book where we're seeing the world through 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 noirish eyes uh, in the here and now. And he's not making nostalgic references to it like he's living a noir story himself. And we realize mm-hmm. this midway through just as he does that I can see the writer's purpose in choosing this. And I can see the uh, mm-hmm. cleverness of doing it more so than I did previously. So. I appreciate you bringing that to cool. uh, to my attention. All right, Again, well, something well, we... I missed in my uh, one-week binge on the book. <laughs> so why don't we move on then and talk about the investigation itself, the plot mm. and the way the plot is put together. I mean, we had a really detailed plot summary. We don't need to go into everything. But if you want to talk highlights, lowlights, or just kind of breeze through and uh, give your score, you're, you're first on stage, pal. Well, these are just some of the notes that I made. Um, I, I mentioned that Jeter has crafted a story as slung from noirish tropes of the detective hero, the femme fatale, the corruption um, of, of, of political and social institutions, and he fused it with the cyberpunk aesthetic. For example, the femme fatale equals November. This trope is subverted when she saves McNeil and he pays for her burn treatment. McNeil's actions redeem her into wanting a better life for herself and she finds someone and wants to find someone to bring her happiness. She almost feels Mm -hmm. sort of like she wants the next step in her life and she's jubilant about it at the end of the story when she's talking to the professional Mm -hmm. child on the train. Uh, that term just sounds creepy to me. <laughs> um, it does. But you you see it, don't you? Like, you understand it. It's like, oh, people who just want to have kids to make themselves feel better. Here's one for you. Exactly. Kids have those say- yeah. the things kids say, right? Um, mm-hmm. Kids say the darndest things. And now I'm just thinking of Bill Cosby now. And that's just- Bill Cosby. Yeah, yeah. Let's move away from that. Another another thing he ruined there. Um <laughs> Corruption, <laughs> speaking of which, uh, Dinah Zober as a corrupt, powerful entity, and Harris is at the forefront of this. Um, 
through his characters, Jeter philosophizes a lot between the threadbare noir meets cyberpunk mm. plot. Mm-hmm. A little too much that emotional investment on my part is to t- it takes a backseat. I, I felt that I could not emotionally connect to this story. And if you're trying to get something done in a short time frame, uh, when you're going mm-hmm. through all of these exhortations, philosophizing on the page, you're not reading the book for the purposes that it was intended. And I think that was one of the, my main issues at, when, at the time yeah. when I was reading this book. Um, yeah, I'm I'm with you, and I think that's a point that's worth lingering on for just a moment because this text is it's not just unforgiving in its pace; it's unforgiving in its density. There is so much packed into it. Every page has yeah, the stylistic prose is challenging enough, but the world building is it's just dropped for you, and it's not until maybe. 15, 20 pages after the reference that you get the explanation. And sometimes you won't even get an explanation. You're just thrown in riding one of these high-speed trains through the gloss and just got to make sense of it as you fly through Jeter's paragraphs and pages. It mm-hmm. is tough. And I would definitely echo what you said about time frame while you're reading. If you're keen on cyberpunk, give yourself enough time to really absorb it uh, because we can do it quickly, but you will miss some of the intricacies that the writers are texturing in there for you, huh? Yep. That is, that is 100% on the nose. And, you know, it's obviously intentional and there's no, there's no doubt about it, but it, nonetheless, it detracted from my experience and it reveals the rather thin plot between the dystopian sex slash technology hellscape that Jeter is trying to convey. You can see that beyond all the florid poetry or not poetry really, but the wor- the verbiage, that there's not really a strong story here. It's very rudimentary. Um, and you're missing the emotional connection that you would get, say, from like mm-hmm. something like a film noir that has these tropes in it. Because, you know, you're not, it's not about, you know, the actor's performances. It's not about, for example, the, you know, the story or the cleverness of the story. It's just, it doesn't have the big music to back it up or the acting or the production design. It, the production design is there, obviously, like, but the production design is so uh, overwhelming, I suppose you could say, yeah. because the production well, that, design that is, is the obviously yeah. the language of the story itself. And mm-hmm. that can, that is definitely intimidating. Uh in terms of like the world building, the IP corporate dominated society is a fascinating look at dystopia. The idea that IP piracy is a capital crime and the emphasis on the suffering of its perpetrators was both frightening, but also darkly, ironically amusing too. Um, mm-hmm. Quite brilliant. And in retrospect, the first three parts artfully reveal uh, to the patient reader <laughs> uh, the mystery and questions we have accumulated, but I found in part four, the resolution is missing uh, the suspense. It's missing that suspense required created through emotional investment through pathos uh, to bring us to an exciting climax, perhaps deliberately kind of, it feels like Sherlock Holmes with McNeil demonstrating he was on to Harris all along, but then it feels like an exposition dump with the villain confirming how great his evil plan via DZ, DZ and uh, yeah. TIAC to master addiction, you know, and despite this mm-hmm. twist and of McNeil already being dead. And I mean, that was clever. That was mm-hmm. a really cool and good thematic connection mm-hmm. to the whole story, the whole background with the wife and how that was going to clear out yeah. for his redemption in the end. So bravo to that. Mm-hmm it still feels very pat despite the setup with mm-hmm. McNeil and his wife. Like 
I found that the ending was very blah. And even the death of the perpetrator yeah. was sort of almost anticlimactic too. No, it was. Yeah, it was. You're I'm with you there. Like you're, you're following characters on the video game platform who are doing stuff at the end. There's so much going on. The overwhelming stimulus is just so heavy that all you can do is concentrate on him jumping, him shooting, him falling, her jumping him. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just the simple actions you're striving for or, or you're being driven towards because the world around it, the, the crumbling towers. And I thought the end zone hotel had already burnt down twice before that but here we are again because we're in the wedge now but the wedge is really McNeil still he's not actually there he's actually his body you know it's I feel like you've got so much so much canvas that's overlapping that it's it's all you can do just to keep up with the basic actions of the characters at the end of the story yeah, it's brilliant I'm, but is it entertaining yeah yeah it's clever and it's it's meta but is it entertaining. I mean, it's a bit like Inception, you know? There's a bit of that because we get no real macro explanation of how these worlds work. The world of the dead, the world of the living, the world of the wedge. All you know is that they're all there, they're all coexisting, and McNihill and others move through them. But when he hits the wedge, things go to crazy town real quick. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean they go to stupid town, I mean they go to complex town even more complex than before. Yeah, and you've absolutely. just got to go with it. Don't ask why, just do it. Just go with it. And that's very much the neuromancer factor too, I felt when I was reading Gibson's book for the first. There's always, or tends to always be a moment in a cyberpunk book where you're just told to strap in. <laughs> I would say the difference <laughs> with, uh, in. yeah. with Inception, uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception, is that he shows you the layers of the dream world, right? And, he, and when, they, when they do, for example, the kick, the kickback where they wake up in one dream, wake up in the next one, next one, and next one, so that they finally reach consciousness, that is still established in the film's mm-hmm. narrative so that it is made clear. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of like the top, the, of the top spinning, and then all of a sudden, is it going to, and the movie ends, is the top going to stop spinning? Or is it going to keep spinning, indicating whether or not the protagonist is still in a dream? And here mm-hmm. with uh, Noir, we're given the layers of, of the of these meta of these metaphys not metaphysical but of these I guess these uh, of these world of these realities the reality of the wedge the reality of the real world outside of that of the perspective of McNeil through his implants um, we're seeing all of these things layered on top of each other and to me I just didn't I didn't feel the connective tissue uh, towards that um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is kind of ironic and, and kind of a failing of the story insofar as so many other features are heavily driven, just heavily driven, right? Yes. Like, what, instead, of having 50, instead of having 15 or 20 different little twists and turns, why not just reduce it to 10 and use 70 pages to connect these worlds together? And to, to pave the road for your reader a little bit. But that's not the frenetic pace of cyberpunk. So we go no. back and forth with this. We go yes. back and forth with this. Like, why should he do that? Why should he make it a more easy narrative when part of the, the thematics are, are you know, um, you I know what I mean? it's all about like, authorial purpose. Challenging. Right? Yeah. It's, it's the yeah. authorial purpose. Yeah purpose is he writing an entertainment that he wants to say oh so so this is you know is he writing is he writing an entertainment where we're like oh this is so cool all of these th- this world that he's created is so interesting mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. uh it makes you think you know but but it's still yeah, like yeah. But, but it still gives us a good action thriller a la for example the matrix but then you have a story like this where it completely eschews the idea of 
finding any entertainment in it. I mean, it's bleak, it's dark, its characters are virtually humorless. If there's humor, it's very, very acidic. Yeah. Sarcastic, uh, sardonic. Sar- sar- yeah. Sar- yeah, you know what I mean? Like, this is not a feel-good yeah. story in any fashion. No, totally and there's, not. It gives you no. the illusion of a possible feel good feel goodness you know by the end of it but we know it's an illusion it's clear in the text that what that harris is going to be replaced the corporation is going to keep doing what it's doing and society is going to keep doing what it's doing and everything is terrible um Uh, yeah human beings are enslaved to corporations even after death i mean how terrible is that well let's move on and talk about some of these terrible people let's talk about our perpetrators before we do that though i think we should address this connect thing in this in, in the terms of the, okay. uh, like this was a, this was obviously a device that he used in the writing do you agree with the idea of 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 connect as i espouse like the idea of uh-huh. of it of the idea of the, the typical connection being a blasphemy the idea of, of of wiring in and this is something that's the fact that it's used as a colloquialism as a swear word by general irony, society yeah. it also shows underneath the surface that there is a disagreement from the people about the world that they currently live in. It's almost a slight form of rebellion even. And if you think about it, when you first start using swear words when you're a teenager and stuff, and you come home from school or, or from like grade eight even, and you start using these swear words and stuff, and your parents are obviously, you know, shocked by it. You know, there's that sense mm-hmm. of feeling of rebellion that you get from swearing. And maybe the idea of, you know, the F word and all those sort of former blasphemies, religious blasphemies, yep. they're lost in the past yep. now. This society had to create a new way to um, voice displeasure at the world that they live in, and that's why, and that's believably why at first connect you connector you connecting. I mean, we're on the territory of like Battlestar Galactica with the fracking, for example, totally. replacing totally. the F word. But as you get inner, as you get, I guess, immersed in the story, you completely start ignoring it you know so you, you start ignoring yep. it and it just comes you go like, with it you go with it yeah it's part of the world building too it's a world building device obviously and it's very it clever is. and it's very it's very clever in that way how at first you you roll your eyes at it initially but then you know you're like you just you just sort of become immune to its humorous possibility mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's no longer cheesy or no longer you know amateurish or childish i suppose yeah yeah it's no longer just substance for substance sake. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Uh, so perpetrators, we've got Harish. We what did have you give um, the investigation? Turbiner. Oh, didn't I say? Oh, I'm so sorry, pal. You're right. We haven't revealed our marks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I like I I like this this story. I I I applaud softly. Applaud Jeter for the complexities that he's trying to put in here. The world that he's built, but I also factor the world that he's built into the environs. So as a story, I think even a story of this, this speed, I think it's too much. I think he's overwhelmed the narrative. He's put too many eggs in the sponge cake and it's weighed down by a reader's experience, struggling, tumbling through scene to scene. Like the set pieces are clear, but the, 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 the connective tissue between those set pieces is often too complex to link. I find myself wanting, I find myself trying to build the bridges and sometimes those bridges are burned because, oh, it was just, it was a data dump. Okay, I understand. Uh, Gosh, what next, you know? And then some of the jumps it takes are not explained. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the jump when we go from, from turd in a can to turd on a wire it's yeah. it's like the next level data dump that we get and okay this is the villain exponent two 
but just go with it. And here we are talking to the ultimate barfly. McNeil, uh blows a he blows a hole in the ceiling, and all of a sudden he sees clear sky, and we're in the end zone hotel. But November is there, and Harish comes, so the dead corpse gets there somehow. It just it's too much, yeah. buddy. It's too much. It's a bit overwhelming for me. My score was two and a half because I liked being there. I know it's a low score for narrative. I just don't think it had to be that complex, even for a cyberpunk novel. I was actually and more I think generous the gener- than you I think, were. <laughs> I, think the general, I think the general reader is going to struggle with this book. I even think the science fiction reader is going to struggle with this book. And if you try to read it quickly, you're going to almost be slapped by the text. It's going to hit you back and say, sorry, you got to give me more time than that, to be honest. Fair enough. I, yeah, I was way more generous than you. I gave it a three out of five. I, I knew that I know there's much more in here that I can appreciate. I knew I felt that as I was reading it, I knew there was. And the more and more that I think about it and how the book sort of is sort of seeping into my cerebral cortex right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm understanding its purpose as we talk about it more. And I understand the way that it was written and why it was written in that way. Now I'm, I'm stuck between, you know, is this a literary text in terms of influential culturally, in terms socially, or is this an entertainment? Well, that's it. Yeah. It's that contention, a, right? Yeah. Totally, so th- buddy. And I'm sorry I didn't say it, but I'm pleased that you did because that is what you straddle here. Like, you know, Jeter is doing important things and he's coming from a, an important philosophical place and he's writing in a subgenre that is doing good work. But how far does he distance the general reader from getting those points, from understanding the important thematics uh, with the overwhelming nature of the story? I, yeah, I th- and I think that is, that's the disconnect and the challenge of cyberpunk, isn't it? Yeah, I like the little flourishes throughout the story. Some of the language that, uh, and the metaphors and, and uh, allusions, allegories, I should say, that Jeter presented um, fascinated me, intrigued me, and, and made me... Uh, you know, think about things in a different perspective. I felt that uh, the story, though, was very thin, and I didn't have any emotional connection to the characters. Uh-huh. And I-, I was trying to make that connection. There's that word again, and I just really mm. couldn't. But I didn't also want to be too hard on the literary merits of this story as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I felt that the literary merits also diminished the the idea of a formal structure of a novel and story and how it should be written. Like it's, it's okay to have literary flourishes, but a novel still should have a certain structure of how it's written. Okay. That so, should pro- so you're, you're professionally stylistically. So oh, interesting. Okay. So you're, yeah. you're, you're challenged by the postmodern features of the writing as well. The, the post-structuralist way that the book is kind of unforgiving and telling its story, the way it skips narrative perspectives, because all the experimental stuff, that Jeter tries. I mean, that's all postmodern writing. Mm-hmm. Yes, and yes. That's, maybe, maybe that says something about you as a reader too. You know, you like your narratives to be uh, transactional, directive, and linear. Maybe not know? all the time. Not all the time. I, I like. No, okay. I like. I, I like a balance, and I found this was unbalanced. Mm-hmm. But I still feel yeah, that okay. it deserves okay. a pass, a good, at least a passing gr- a grade, and maybe just a little bit of uh, guilt on the fact that I couldn't give it the study that it required. So I'll give mm. it three out of five. All right. Well, I did give it the study it required, uh, most definitely. And I went lower than that because I still feel the takeaway is um, is less than it should be. Uh, for the investment involved, the takeaway is less. And I think that ultimately that, that comes down to the investigation. But as a detective story, also just a detective story, it's kind of bland. Yes. Like, 
and that's that's also important for lighting the pipes for the you know for for our mission statement here on the show it is a bland detective story because the world is built so so intricately that you lose some of that as you're saying you lose some of that grit of just the fun chase the adventure because you spend so much time wearing heavy boots right mm-hmm. as a reader anyway let's uh, let's move on uh, to perpetrators i don't have much to say on the perpetrator front buddy i'll just tell you that uh Harish, as a perpetrator he's a stand-in for a corrupt company um there's nothing really unique about him he's a slime ball you know anybody who would hire and then fire through the head a prostitute to you know seduce somebody and then you're killing a homeless guy because he might have seen you even though he had called the killing in so the homeless guy wouldn't have had a chance anyway like i I, he's just a jerk and he does have that maniacal sort of egotistical need to uh tell you everything that how clever he was that bond villain trope almost you know at the end of the story it's convenient it's I don't know, like, he's clever in a devious way, but I find it really difficult to separate him from Dinah Zauber. Like, the two of them seem so inextricably linked in their corruption and, and their sinister ways that he is really just the face of the, prowler the evil of in Dinah, this world. Of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I, I mean, he's okay. He's all right. Um, the perpetrator is really the world. It's the corruption of the business world. And... Insofar as he's that character's, you know, he's the symbol of that. Yeah, he's okay. I went for a three perpetrator overall. I went for a three. Um, I sense it's low, but that's what I did because Harish wasn't a villain in the true sense of the word. He didn't have a dynamic range of, as you like to say, um, the moral compass, the ambiguity. He was what he was. And once you saw him on page one, you knew what he was going to be on page 401. He, he He is what he was, you know. Yeah, I think in other circumstances, I might have found his character like over the top in terms of villainy. And as you said, he is almost like an avatar for the Dinosaur, for the evil corporation, for the evil of the world. But at the same time, I kind of liked his pride. Uh, he, he had that sin of yeah, pride yeah. and I admired his he conviction. Yeah. His conviction yeah. was really interesting, you know, like, uh-huh. okay. You know, like he was trying to bring about what was espoused by the author, like the idea of the society that they were living in. And he seems to be one of thousands of like-minded individuals in this society. He's easily replaced. So we know that mm-hmm. even though if he's taken out that's true. so yeah. anticlimactically, even in the book, it won't make a difference because he's just a speck mm-hmm. and there'll be someone else to mm-hmm. take his place easily. You know, at, you know, we mentioned his death was rather anticlimactic, but I found that he was, he was extremely effective uh, in, in, in his villainy. And I like the fact that he was hands-on in his villainy. That was really interesting too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it made him a tangible. Yeah, he didn't have that someone made him going a, around doing it for him. Hmm. That made a tangible threat. I also liked his sort of, his incredulity towards, you know, why would, why would mm-hmm. McNeil yeah. uh, save. Want to do it otherwise. Yeah. Save November's life trying to find the ulterior uh-huh. motive or is this guy just crazy? Like he can't understand uh-huh. the idea of uh, the idea of compassion, you know, like he just uh-huh. can't under- understand it. He seems arch- archetypal most of the time and we don't get any insight on his personality. And even, even though he's broadcasting his ambitions all the time, he's on the surface. Yes. But I found there was a little something there that could have been, if you scratch away at it, you could got a little bit more. So I wanted to see him a little more development from his character, but mm. alas, I'm going with three out of five on his character because yeah. I did find him on, at least on a fundamental level, a rather interesting villain. Okay. Well, do you know, it's interesting you say that about wanting a little bit more development because I think here is the problem with the book. 
instead of giving us a little bit more development about Harish, and maybe the history between he and McNeil, which we know does exist, at least lightly, lightly, what does Jeter do? What does Jeter do? He gives us a scene where we are completely distracted by this the stigmata and this light of him presenting himself at the train site, at the site of the train crash, rather, on, on this cruciform shape and illuminated by this sort of light. That's what takes our focus and our attention, not what the character is, but instead that the character chooses to present himself in this strange technological way. And I feel like that detracts from the character writing because we're looking at the gimmick, we're looking at the flash, we're not looking at, at, at maybe even paying attention to what the character is saying. And yeah. that's a bait and switch that I don't feel is ever negotiated with, with, with true balance in the story. You could argue that in a way, you know, we talked about how simulacrum takes the meanings of text mm-hmm. and, and dilutes them uh, for mass mm-hmm. consumption, taking away meaning from them. The idea that you're turning a, 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 uh, what could be a three-dimensional character, even a villain per se, into like this symbolic evil, especially with an ironic symbolic evil with you mentioning of of him on the crane with on the cruciform Uh shape, right? That Mm -hmm. to me indicates the idea of simulacrum of the Mm -hmm. taking these characters that we should be emotionally invested in, in a traditional narrative and not allowing us to do that. And that sort of connects us challenging us. Yeah. Yeah. To that world and challenging us and, Mm -hmm. You know, if you we want to be challenged have it the, the way time, we want it. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to ask ourselves, do we not appreciate that because we do not want to be challenged by a text or, mm-hmm. or is there something about yeah. us that we're, that we're resisting it or, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting wonder, to think yeah. about. Again, we're. It's a reader response. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's a reader response issue. It's about what, what the author's purpose was. And maybe for those who don't really appreciate it just aren't on the same wavelength as, as the author and maybe that's one of the 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 things about cyberpunk is that it's you know it's a well-known genre of science fiction but it's also a very exclusive inclusive genre of science fiction there are people who are going to say go over to the more traditional science fiction stories like uh there's going to be people who like arthur c Clarke. there's going to be people who like isaac asimov or like the expanse Mm -hmm. novels or, or for example, a Philip K. Dick novel on its own. But then there's cyberpunk, though. It has its own readership because people know what to expect, what they what to get from the genre. So mm-hmm. as in terms of an average reader picking up this book, there's going to be a challenge. But if you're familiar with the genre uh, of, and the language of cyberpunk, then this could, you know, make your day. And, and, and you could totally buy into this, I suppose. Yeah, but it for depends sure. on the person. No. It's very subjective, as all this is, of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course it is. All right, so uh, what was your score? I gave it three out of five. Okay, well, I was at a 3.5 because I thought the big bad here um, was at least clearly linked to that theme of corruption and dystopia, which is so important in cyberpunk. I, I wanted to see it. I wanted to make sure it was there and it and, and that it was consistent throughout. And I thought it was through Harish. So even though I had problems with Harish, I went a little bit above you, but I think we're saying the same thing, really. You know, we're just trading half points, aren't we? We really are. So what about the environments? All right, so, right well, well, here was my highest mark because... Um, for what I criticized in the character writing and what I critic what do I what I criticized in the investigation, I like the world building that is going on here. Is it too overwhelming? 
yeah, it is too overwhelming. But the bits that stick are really, really clever. Really yes. clever. Yes. Like everything, exactly. everything, everything in my mind is rendered. Like you could have, like this, this is ready to go to film. Uh, yes. There's so much to pick from. You have the turtle shell carrying homeless folk that kind of live in their own little shells because they're so dispossessed. You have the guys like Turbiner, you know, who have their own flat and their stereo speakers hooked up, who represent kind of the the nouveau riche in a sense. You know what I mean? Kind of, kind of, or the forgotten nouveau riche. Yes. Um, then you've got the scum lords who have their own world and sphere. You've got the heavies, like the um, debt collecting agency heavies that go out and get after November. Then you've got your Bishop of North America set piece, which shows that world and the commodification of religion. You've got the the Noah flies and the machinery that's kind of through the atmosphere, right? Like taking out the satellites, taking out any sort of uh, uh, aircrafts that threaten the world of the corporate existence. You've got that remarkably strange and too strange sex ocean at the end, right? That nutrient-rich sex ocean that kind of preserves the human life and death in this sort of game of fornication, which is... Wow, we got to talk about that with environment because I I need to know how you felt about that. But then we've got the I couldn't wedge, like conceptualize it. I just couldn't like what the okay, f is right. he talking about? What the f is he what talking? What the connect about? is he doing? Yeah. What the connect is he doing exactly? Like, <gasps> yeah. It took me out it was, of like it ruined the climax for me. Like I was just uh-huh, like I was uh-huh. more there, there's like these there's a big showdown between the protagonist and the antagonist of the film of the story, and then. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we have this thing going on in the background. It just doesn't make any <laughs> sense right. to me. It feels like it's a meta thing where like he's making a metaphor clear on this in, on the page, but it doesn't have yes. any resonance or urgency to the situation at hand. I, I, uh-huh. I just, I, I, I don't know, man. Like, and this is the thing I'm revealing right now that I don't appreciate these things in narrative. So I think it's clear. Uh-huh. And despite me, I do appreciate a lot of science fiction texts. I love Orwell. I, I loved uh, brave new world by Aldous Huxley. Um, I'm very open-minded when it comes to sci-fi, but I think cyberpunk is a challenge for me because it I don't is, like man. the it's way a it challenge. makes me feel. It is, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I don't like the way I don't like I I don't get anything from it. But well, no, I get I get an intellectual exchange from it, and I appreciate the philosophy. But I can go read like a philosophy book. I can go read you know Machiavelli or Desartre or Brouillard, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. Well. Okay, the way I read it, right, the way I read it is that because McNeil views things metaphorically, we are also meant at this point to see the metaphor on the page. That's kind of how I read it. And yeah. that when it's it's part of the wedge, it's part of the wedge as much as it is part of the real world, but it's part of the real world because it takes Harish with him. And so all yes. of these worlds are coming together here in the climax. Worlds are colliding. <laughs> worlds are colliding. And Remember, the sea is is not just bodies who I see as victims of the corporation's exploitation over the years and, and, you know, that type of stuff. But also, you've got the tattoos swimming. These tattoos that, when people die, go here to this sort of polyorganism to continue their fornicating ways and transferring messages and neurons and all of this sort of shit. Uh, it's a jump the shark moment for me. That's what I wrote <laughs> because yeah. it it goes to crazy town and and then it gives you a paddle and says jump in right like good luck here. 
but no thanks. this is also I'll, I'll stand on the rooftop and and uh, look down upon <laughs> yeah. it uh i'll hang on the i'll hang on the cameraman's boom mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. exactly i can't tell you what's going on here it is bonkers it's like and, and that's kind of where I find it's a bit of a cop-out. Like a writer can be clever and creative and then just be crazy and say, cyberpunk, stamp it at the this end. This feels like you know something I mean? that Stephen King would do at the end of like the Dark Tower series. And and uh, King just takes a traditional story and, and, and he's bringing it towards what could be a really interesting conclusion. But then he just does something. He does like a 180 because basically he admits maybe in an interview that he was just bored with the story and decided to change the ending. And uh, so that, that's kind of what there's yeah. sort of like this authorial, um, fuck off about it all. Yeah, exactly. There's almost like a, a dismissal of their own text and moving on to the next thing, you know, like it's almost like, well, a, maybe I see, I do see this as a culmination. I'm just, I'm going to put my hand up and say, it's a culmination that I just don't understand. Like, I don't know. I don't understand why and how it comes together this way. I just know that it does. Why? Because we need a storm. And it seems to me that the only storm or the easiest storm to pick is a storm of sex and exploitation. And we know that the bodies underneath or part as part of this polyorganism, the skin, the bones, the organs, they're all rubbery and decaying and sexy. And it's all sorts of weird shit that's thrown in there. It's ugly. It's ugly shit. And... This is surrealist aspect. Yeah. That, oh, that. dude. Yes. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. This is like a Dali thing, isn't it? And then some- we're, but at this point though, is like, I'm taken out of the narrative. I am, I'm out of the diegesis. I am now in a meta. I am now like looking at this mm-hmm. on a meta level. And that robs me of, of emotional investment of suspense of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Satis- narrative satisfaction. <laughs> I guess to use the word satisfied yeah. and maybe that was the goal. But again, is this didn't hit didn't work for you huh it didn't work for me no and that's all you know Fair and enough. that's well and that's fine yeah. that's fine it's, it's fine <laughs> of course it is so you think there's just too many eggs in this pudding that's what you're telling me yeah like i can't deny the, custard, the, the custard's too thick yeah yeah like i can't deny the cyberpunk language you know and the world building all those little details the domineering corporate culture and the detritus of human civilization of the past spread out all over this place there's like piles and piles of junk of the old world just like lying around the, you know, perimeter of this Pacific Rim society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, which is also an interesting form because, again, we're in, in terms of noir, the detective thriller. We're kind of back to like a super Los Angeles here in a way. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it did offer, you know, like I'm not using pseudo intellectual in a derogatory sense. That's just my only way of really describing it because we're not on the level here of reading, as I said, someone like Sartre or reading, for example, um, or, or, Heidegger. Yeah. Or, yeah. or Heidegger or something like that. Yeah. We're reading like philosophy that's enmeshed with a narrative storyline, mm-hmm. a very in a traditional narrative storyline mm-hmm. in a futuristic world. So I think, and, the, and terms that are created by the author. So I think pseudo intellectual is definitely a good way to describe it. Um, it offered some mind bending and evocative and disturbing visuals, but it was overly florid when it should have been more eloquently, but succinctly stated. And I think that was my issue is I don't mind the metaphor, the allegory. I don't mind being hit over the head with that, but the fact that it was just too florid and the language itself was almost having Mm -hmm. sex with each, with each other in a way that um, (laughs) everything was connecting in this story. You've just explained, you've just explained the polyorganism. 
Hey, there we go. Um, yeah, eloquence and to the pointness, I think, uh, or subtlety in getting to that point, I think would have been my mm-hmm. would have been my preference in regard to the, the world building and the storytelling here. Okay, right on. So, but uh, what so, was your mark? I was impressed. Uh-huh. I was impressed. I can't mm-hmm. deny mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I gave it. I gave that was probably one of the highest marks that I gave it. Actually, it is the highest mark that I gave it, which is four. Okay, well, I went for a four as well because although there are so many problems with it, the too much, as we say, the too much egg in the custard, um, and how the story is bogged down by that, the things that stick, as I referenced a few moments ago, I think they really stick well, and they could be they they are visually stunning, they're really arresting on the page, and they make you think about how the world got to this place, and there are enough characters den, den- denizens in in this literary world to um to keep me occupied and interested and it's big the environs are big in the story but they are impressive when you can linger to get them you know and i think that's 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 good so i'm going four on good credit as well for the environment um then we got our secondary characters to finish off our review of noir uh i've got a three and a half here overall um november Turbiner, I like Turbiner. I didn't see November as a femme fatale. I got to be honest with you. I saw her as oh, just no, kind she's, of like. She's a, if I didn't make that clear, sorry. Femme fatale, what I meant by that. And sorry for interrupting you there. But um, hmm? I just realized maybe I didn't explain it very well. She is a, uh, she is a deconstruction of a femme fatale. Yeah. That's what I'm trying oh, to say. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. So, okay. If you look at the tropes of noir, right. she is mm-hmm. set up as the femme fatale of the story. She is sort of like set up because uh, in a way, because she's going after she's following and she's going after mm-hmm. uh, McNeil the protagonist, the protagonist. Yeah. So that sets her up as but a she's under fatale. the thumb of somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So on the surface, you know, she's like, I don't know, like Ava Gardner in the killers or something like that. But really, she's Lauren Bacall by yeah, the end of it, yeah. if, if you think about it. So yeah, she's yeah. a victim. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um but I also see Verity, that sort of, we haven't talked about Verity yet, but the reason why McNahill, you know, the, the big female <laughs> president, well, she, did, she didn't. But in a sense, she's the red herring femme fatale too. True, you know, She's true, also true. thrown in there as a, as a threat to the, to the male's um, survival, or at least, uh, you know, journey, right? But, you know, we, we've got the Adder Clome, who's a pretty interesting figure. We've got the ultimate barfly. Why can't he we just use the word the clone? Why can't he just use the word clone? <laughs> because it has to be, it's got to be his own world built, right? Sure. I, that's the, those are the details that you put in. Yeah, yeah. Because that's we, the we, pretension we, that you don't like. Yeah. 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 No, it's not. Like, I, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I struggle with some, with, I struggle with writing sometimes is the world building is that sometimes you want to describe things to your audience too much, but sometimes you just got to trust your audience, I guess, and just have them like take yeah. a dive in and see how they feel about it. And that's really all you can do, right? Because yeah. there's going to be people- that's a good out, point you make, yeah. There's going to be people who will read your work and they will say that it's crap, that I don't like this, this is not my thing. I don't think you're talented. But for every one of those people, like there is someone out there as well who will say, this is great. I totally agree with, with you on this. This is something that um, I, I've always wanted to see someone talk about in, in terms of writing, in terms of storytelling, and you have tapped into that. And I think that makes this really outstanding. So you're going to find mm-hmm. someone out there who really likes your stuff, and then you have a whole bunch of other people who don't like it. So you want to write for you, and you want to start mm-hmm. writing then for the people who respond positively 
even yeah, though it's a few, to, work, yeah. to to your work. Yeah, right. Well, I, I thought they were good. I went three and a half, like I say, for the secondary supporting work. I was there's enough people in here to have been interested. Yeah, okay. I was three. They did their job. You know, they were plot. To, they were walking plot devices, in my personal opinion. But you know, mm-hmm. they did their job, and they you know they had a bit of character on top of them, like Turbiner and November to an extent, and some of the other characters. I did sort of like the sassiness of the uh, of the clone uh, guy. Yeah, he was sassy, and he kind of had this sort of superiority complex too, which was ironic because he was really just, yeah, I don't know, was he an avatar? Like, again, here here we come. Like, was, was he real? <laughs> was he a real human? That, like, a prowler had been had been just sort of cybernetically enhanced? Yeah, it's, it's possible. Like, because the word android is never used in this story. No, no or cyborg, uh, or, or, or cyber. Or online. Yes, yeah, cyber, yep. online, the internet. It's all like the, the, there is a real, uh, uh, an absence of that stuff that we want to understand the world by. And so the, the, the book that we would use environmentally to understand the future isn't there. Like, no. we don't know what's online. We don't know what's offline. Everything is new. Everything is different. So as much as the society has evolved and these supporting characters are doing things that we can kind of recognize, the language, the vernacular, as you say, the verbiage, it's all different. And so we are very much swimming in that polyorganism, you know, like, well, not that one, but we're swimming in gelatin. We're, yeah, we're in some sort of gelatin. Yeah, <laughs> as exactly. readers, yeah. Yeah. Well, buddy, um, after we cut up the jelly and we serve up the mold, you've got 16 out of 25 here for Noir, which I think is actually probably a little bit more generous than I thought you were going to be with it. Oh, I'm at a 17.5. Yeah. So it's funny when yeah, it adds I think, up, you know. Yeah. Mm, it is. I, I think your, your trouble with the book does have to do with the postmodern style, too, though. I do think that that's something that maybe I'm a bit more forgiving of. And forgiving is not the right word. Something I'm a bit more in tune with, maybe, my reading over the years than than you. Um, you know, I don't know. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that you... Uh, yeah, I think that's do- fair. I just think it was the the imbalance of the, of the postmodern literary work and the story that he was trying to tell. It's sort of like you got to find the balance in between them. And, and that, to me, is what I think... Yeah, too much makeup for what you're trying to put on. Yeah, exactly. Too much stage makeup. Uh, that, that's good. That makes me that, sound less good. intellectual. Well, I guess I'm not as intellectual <laughs> as I thought I was. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're too hard on yourself. Like this has been a, a behemoth of an episode, and I'm not actually sure we've given listeners a clear run through our review because we had so many questions. A behemoth. A behemoth. I was say be- behemoth. Yeah. Yeah, just putting the emphasis on the different syllables, you know, like like McNihill might do with uh, Disnannies, Disnannies, and, and whatnot. <laughs> Bam off, I like. That. Uh, yeah, but anyway, um, that's the caveat. It's it's, it's been a good conversation. It's it's a caveat. It's been a good conversation. I have enjoyed this, even though I feel as though I'm probably as confused now as I was the first time I read the book. <laughs> I think yeah. I've been connected a few too many times in this chat. Connected over, yeah. I've been connected over. Well, look, everyone, <laughs> thanks for listening. We hope you got something out of this episode. Um, Noir is an interesting book, and it's it's got a place in a mystery detective podcast like ours. Uh, but it's so it's so cybernetic, so so futuristic, and I don't know. Maybe we didn't do a good enough job of talking about the noir elements in the story. But uh, luckily, 
lighting the pipes noir will satisfy your pension for that stuff everyone <laughs> there you go so what do we got coming up next on lighting the pipes well lighting the pipes this podcast uh, the main podcast will be handling um body in the library by agatha christie yeah, I'm excited about tapping into our first uh, Miss Marple story. In fact, the first Miss Marple story. Yeah, and props Isn't to that? us for not going to the direct pyro route, too. So, mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah. And uh, I think, Josh, we've got another Light in the Pipes Noir coming up as well, don't we? That's right. Uh, we'll be looking at Raymond Chandler's uh, screenplay and the film directed by George Marshall, The Blue Dahlia. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that. I might even, I might pop in. I might pop in and do a little something-something with you on that one. Figuring that, you know, we did that whole season on Chandler, I think that would be a great idea. Yeah. 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 I think I might. I'll watch the film and give you my two cents as well. And you can tag it on to your episode there at the end. Well, look, everybody. Uh, uh, Very good. We appreciate your endurance with this one. It's a big episode. Noir is not an easy read. Um, We passed it. We recommend the story. Uh, It's experimental. It's challenging, particularly if you're not cyberpunk uh, initiate. But if you are, you might have some thoughts that you'd like to share with us about the way we took the story, how we digested, cut it up and served it for you. So get in touch with us on the socials. You can find us on Instagram or you can email us at lightingpipes at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody, for, uh, for for sticking with us on this tough episode. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, this is a deep deep subgenre and we were only scratching the surface of it here i wouldn't say that noir is a seminal cyberpunk text but it's um its tropes are really alive here and uh, that's part of what makes it so challenging a read as a detective story you want that linear narrative even with the twists the turns and the red herrings we've got them here but we got so much uh heavy prose that uh, maybe eh, don't know if the balance is right yeah the hills of Detritus are alive with the sound of Noir. The sound of Tannhauser. Mm. Mahler. <laughs> and on that note, take care. We'll see you soon on Lighting the Pipes. Arrivederci. <laughs>